and welcome back to Metastation for our podcast on episode 503, Sleeping Giants. We have now awakened. Um, I'm Erin. I'm an English professor in Mississippi who is extremely sleep deprived, hence the already terrible jokes that will undoubtedly continue. Uh, I'm Claire. I'm a writer in Portland, Oregon, who is routinely amused by sleep deprived Erin and her escalating loopiness because we've been down this road before. So we're going to have a great day. It's going to be really fun. So two things to sort of just note going in on the fact that I've slept no more than four and a half hours for the last four nights straight for various reasons. Number one, I will forget what the fuck I'm saying at some point, several (laughs) points, and either just like wander off or just be like, I don't know what's happening and then ask Claire to talk. And two, I will probably laugh at something not funny at least once and cry for no reason at least once. So it's going to (laughs) be an emotional roller coaster. But I think come on this journey with us. (laughs) I think it will be very amusing for everyone listening at home. Uh... (laughs) Well, and it's also a nice way of replicating your experience of watching this episode in which I would imagine that you both laughed and cried. I, I did. You know, I don't know. It's funny. There was a lot of funny moments in this episode, which was great. It was like one yes. of those that I, I don't watch the hundred expecting humor. So we got like a little kind of funny moments or even, you know, just moments where you make me smile. It was wonderful. But I was so tense. Like this whole episode, I was like oh clutching my, my hands yeah. together. I was like leaning forward. So I actually think the first time I watched it, I don't think I actually laughed so much as this kind of like, <laughs> This kind of like weird, whining, <laughs> high-pitched... We don't have time for jokes right now, Murphy. <laughs> like, I know that was funny, so I'm going to make a weird sound, but I can't actually laugh because I'm too like, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, God. <laughs> well, that actually, that one thing that I think we should talk about before we kind of dive into the plot that I actually think is worth touching on related to that, with sort of the sense of tension, is how wonderfully different tonally all three episodes have been, and yet it doesn't feel messy or inconsistent like they're three yeah. incredibly distinct stories with three incredibly different tones and pacing but yet it feels like okay they're separate because they're sort of laying the groundwork in three different worlds and so they're three different kinds of storytelling but it all still like having that variety while also having it feel so seamless yeah is amazing to me like it's a really masterfully crafted season across the board so far in addition to the fact that like each individual episode has been very very good the fact that, I don't know, that, that you can, you know, because the, the first one had this kind of, like, it was so meditative and you're isolated with Clark for so long and you're inhabiting that sense of isolation. And then the last episode was so, like, the world is so dark and grim and sad. And then this one had the kind of zip of a really good action movie yeah. where you just feel like you're sitting on the edge of your seat. But it had room for wisecracks and room for relationship moments and room for so much heart. It was like an action film in the diehard school. Like- yeah. Lots of heart pounding action, you know, it's kind of moving, moving, Mm -hmm. lots of high stakes, but you know, like also lots of humor, lots of heart, lots of Mm -hmm. heroes who are motivated by just trying to get to their loved ones. Mm -hmm. And I love Die Hard. So (laughs) yeah, no, I I know. This is a huge compliment. Yeah, Yeah, huge compliment. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I mean, like, honestly, I think, you know, too, with any TV show that can sort of shift so deftly and with such self-assurance and confidence and skill from one completely different mode or tone or style to the next from episode to episode is just 
I mean, that's so rare, you know, like usually TV shows when they're good, they're kind of good at one thing, you know, they do their thing. Exactly, they're good yeah. at it, Right. And so I feel like they've reached a new level. Like this is the same, you know, it's basically so far. It's all, all three episodes have been written by writers who've been with the show, at least since last season, Jason and Aaron and Wade have been with the show since I think the beginning. And then Terry Hughes Burton has been there, mm. I think since at least last season. So it's not like they're new, but yeah, it just yeah. kind of feels like everyone just sort of, and the, and the directors too, you know, it's the same directors. Mm-hmm. I don't think they've had a new, had someone who hasn't done one before, but I, I don't know. I just feel like every piston is firing, you know, just, it's pretty amazing. And I'm just so happy and in awe of how awesome the season is so far. And I just like, yeah, kudos to everyone involved because yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like it really, it feels like the show has like gotten its mojo back and mm-hmm. it feels like it is like, I'm excited about this episode for a lot of reasons. One of which is just like on its own, it's a really good episode. And yeah. one of which is that we sort of know from Jason that if the first two were putting the pieces on the chessboard and this episode is really where we start to see what's going to become the A plot really take off. But also it's really validating the thing that everybody, you know, everyone who got screeners was saying, you know, Selena and everybody and Crystal that like all four episodes are really consistently strong and mm-hmm. to have a run this strong this early in the season to me really says they came into this knowing the story they were going to tell with like full confidence in it just like balls to the wall breaks off and it makes me feel like with each consecutive episode that just builds on how good the last one was and adds to that world and fleshes it out it makes me feel more of a sense of confidence that the entire season will be at that level because we liked a lot of stuff in seasons three and season four, but three episodes in, there were already balls being dropped. Yeah. You know, like there were already, like this far into the season, the last two seasons, there were already some things we were kind of like, I'm going to stick a pin in this thing later because I feel like I'm sort of already not sure if this thing is going to be resolved, mm-hmm. you know? And more noteworthy, I think, in season three, but like even in season four, there were some things where we were kind of like, I'm keeping my eye on this thing. Mm-hmm. And really in season five so far with these three, like I do have two, when we get to the space crew part of the story, I have two very minor nitpicks that I'm perfectly willing to let go that there's plenty of time to resolve that are just the only two things where I'm kind of like ooh like record scratch like that's pulling me out a little bit but they're so small and so fixable and everything else really feels like everything they're setting up for every character all the new characters all the world dynamics I'm just like I'm ready to prematurely call this my one of my favorite seasons of the entire show already and I didn't feel that way last season or the season before this early in this season like I was this feels like the groundwork being laid for something that is going to be you know when all is said and done and everyone's binge watching the whole thing on Netflix later, however many years in the future after it's over, everyone will be like, oh, season five was one of the best ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think like up there with just like, I mean, you know, in comparison to just TV shows in general, a really great season of TV. Yeah, like one of those, you know, some shows just sort of hit that point where there's some season where just everything works, every arc works, there's no balls being dropped, there's no like, oh, except for that one weird story, like there's just sort of (laughs) kind of a standout. And I think for the hundred so far, I think season two really, I think is sort of Mm -hmm. the one that we all more or less agree was kind of the first one of those. And this feels like it's at, with potentially the possibility to surpass that level because it's that tight already. Yeah. And the new characters that they're introducing are some of my favorite new people who have ever shown up in this world. Oh, yes. 
So on that note, let us start out on the ground with Clark and Maddie, which is, I think, where we start the episode. Mm -hmm. And I I thought it was really, you know, sometimes what they choose to put in the previouslys is really, really, I mean, I guess, you know, like they always choose the previouslys based on like, here's the story you need to remember to know what's going on. But I thought what was interesting about the previouslys on this one was that it felt like what they were really trying to, they were like, the previouslys were priming us for like, remember who Clark is now, because we got that line again Mm -hmm. about, you know, I used to think that life was about more than just surviving. I don't think that anymore. You know, animals don't worry about who they kill. They just Mm -hmm. kill or they are killed. And then we go straight to Clark fucking setting up a booby trap to impale a guy. (laughs) Like season one. I mean, like that was straight Mm -hmm. up out of the like juggalo grounders from season one. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Like that dude was like, he got the same shit that Roma got. Like that was a Roma. That was like the way that Roma died. She totally roamed that guy. Yeah. And the, and the Lincoln parallels that we talked about in the first episode with Clark that were more emotional and like heartfelt, you know, like the drawing and the her sense of isolation and mm-hmm. things like that. Like they, they come back in this episode in a totally different way. Yeah. Oh, one other parallel I didn't I didn't think about until I was rewatching today. So that first scene, which is a fascinating scene between her and Maddie, but one thing that I watching, I was thinking, so Clark, you know, she impaled the guy and Maddie, of course, is like super uncomfortable with this. She tells Clark this is wrong. And then she says, well, okay, like he doesn't have to suffer, right? We can just kill him now. And Clark says no. And then you realize that she's using that guy as bait. Like she doesn't, she wants him to stay alive and screaming Mm -hmm. so that she can draw out the rest of the Elegious people. Which is exactly what the Grounders did with Jasper mm-hmm. in episode mm-hmm. two. So like, there's also there's like a callback. It's, you know, it's another way. Oh sort of like yeah, yeah, the yeah. Huge Jasper thing, you know, in, in uh, episode one in terms of like emotional side, this more sort of interpersonal side. But it's really interesting that this is Clark kind of like taking what was done to Jasper when they got to the ground mm-hmm. and doing that to Legius, which is like another like a way more disturbing parallel, a sort of callback. Oh yeah. You know, that reminded me of only tangentially related, but only because of the script to screen from 501 that, that came out that included the moment where she's in the rover and finds the box of Jasper's things. And one thing that was referenced in the stage directions that I don't remember flagging visually when it happened. So I had sort of like a fresh wave of Jasper's sadness all over again. <laughs> but that he kept the spear tip, the blood covered tip of the spear that they pulled out of him when he was like speared in the pilot. And, and I remember thinking like, he must have kept that as like a memento of Clark saving him, like of these people, you know, saving his life when he was faced with this terrifying enemy and that that was something that he just sort of like hung on to as a kind of a remembrance of the trauma that he'd been through and of his friends saving his life. And so that reversal of Clark taking the traumatic thing that happened to him and using it sort of for her own ruthless purposes is exceptionally chilling just if we look at it in terms of the gap from the Clark six years ago in that rover with Jasper his box of stuff to this Clark now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, re- it really is like the kind of total way that she's sort of disconnected that those are people. Like they're just the exactly, enemy. yeah. They're just like Maddie says, you know, they're they're this is your home, and and Maddie says they're trying to take it. You know, the way that she just kind of like snaps right into that us versus mm-hmm. them, which is yeah. so interesting to see because that was not ever Clark before. But I think you know one mm-hmm. one interesting thing is like especially with Maddie in those early scenes in that first scene, and then especially when they're running through the woods and she's getting Maddie to hide. Clark's fear is so palpable. Like, I mean, Liza Taylor mm-hmm. just manages to sell her just like sense of sheer, absolute terror and panic. Mm-hmm. 
which I think is really, I kind of feel like that seems really important to this, that, you know, that cl- that this is a Clark who is running 90% on fear. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting because we talked about a little bit last week, we were talking about Kane and Abby and Miller and Jackson a little bit, the way that love is this really important force, you know, like love is something mm-hmm. that motivates people to do things that they might not otherwise be able to do both like wonderful and horrible. But this is a kind of another place where like, this is another moment of where love is sort of pushing someone to do something really dark. This is a moment when love takes the form of the fight or flight reflex. Yeah. Flooding Clark's brain and she's not able to think clearly or in any kind of like any kind of like strategic or sort of empathetic way. And it's it's really interesting to kind of like see that version of Clark. Like, again, like I mm-hmm. think there are also just so many ways where just like so much stuff Clark did in this episode where I was just like that it's just like straight up season one Bellamy. Just like yeah. making <laughs> yes. stupid ass decisions. <laughs> you know, just oh, because yeah. like she's gotta keep her little girl safe. Well, it's, and I think it was an instructive choice, like you were saying in terms of what goes into the previously, is that they kept the entirety of her line about like animals don't really have an internal morality about killing because this is very much like animal instinct like when a Mm -hmm. mother animal attacks you for coming near her cub you know it isn't hate there's no malice behind it it's purely a fear response like there's there's no other sort of agenda happening but like when we talk about mama animal whatever attacks like that's where it comes from yeah Yeah. I was gonna say like this puts a whole new spin on mama bear Clark you know like right like they were in the sense of like a mother like if you get between a mother bear her in cub, a terrifying she will sense, fucking yeah. Maul you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She will rig up a trap to like, <laughs> you know, plunk an axe through your chest and like stand there and listen to you scream and be like, "It's okay, sweetie. We're gonna be fine." Like, whoa. <laughs> And we were like, poor Maddie, you know, like, God, this has got to be, I mean, like Maddie, who's been living for six years, you know, in this like peaceful, idyllic, Mm -hmm. you know, Edenic paradise in total peace and harmony with Claire and everything else, you know, and then this happens and she's watching, you can kind of see that she's watching Clark turn into somebody that she doesn't really completely know, you know, in front of her eyes. Like she, and I love like, Maddie's so wonderful. I like, I love that we already are seeing Maddie push back, you know, like that Maddie is willing to say to Clark like this is wrong what we're doing is wrong we shouldn't be doing this even though she loves her and trusts her so much you know Mm. she still has that sort of moral compass is still there and it's not you know it's not totally Clark's moral compass well and and I think it sets up a couple of potential unfolding arcs for me that I'm really interested in this is something else that I just sort of loved across the board for this episode was I really felt like for so many of the characters you could see them really teeing up you know, if not laying out definitively, like, here's where the story is going to go. Like, here's a bunch of different things that could become problems later, you know, in really exciting yeah. ways. And with Maddie, I think one of the things that was really interesting to me, and I mean, and of course, it was really, really kind of tied together in the ending scene, but like the parallels between Maddie and Bellamy and how time has changed or circumstances have changed the people that they love, you know, yeah. like, like the way Bellamy is going to see Octavia when he sees her again. And that's space between the myth of Octavia in his mind and heart and the real terrifying person that she's become. I think there's a lot of shadows of that in you know, and Maddie's watching it happen in real time. Yeah. Whereas Bellamy is going to get run over with it like a truck. Yeah. Well, and with Clark too. You know, I think next episode, I'm guessing that yeah. they'll have like a very I wonderful, don't... touching, tearful talk, whatever, and then immediately, you know, and then everything will go right to hell. Yeah. 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 Clark will be like, "So we're just going to kill them all, right?" And Bellamy will be like, "Um, who are you?" <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Clark? <laughs> yeah. Well, 
Well, and that's what, and I and I think it, you know, it gets into the head and heart stuff really mm-hmm. came back in such a powerful way because we see, and we'll talk about this more when we get to Space Crew, but like Bellamy's really nailing that balance. Like yeah. he is, he's such a you know, he really has, like Selena was saying, you know, in her review, like he really has become like the cane of this group, like the good cane. Like he's he's balanced. He, you know, like watching him, like trying to like include Murphy in decision making, and he hasn't lost any of his smarts, but he also has found a way to think differently and more strategically in the way that Clark does, while also keeping that inherent emotional bellaminess. So, like, so he's become like a much more holistic leader, like we were all kind of expecting. And Clark, especially when you put her up next to somebody like Dioza, who who is all brain. Yeah. The fact that she is, I mean, like her love for Maddie is almost to a level where it's like, it transcends heart and it becomes primal animal instinct. Like she's kind of, it's kind of almost neither. Like it, because there isn't like, heart would imply in some way, like compassion for these other people, like a sense of a, I think a broader way of thinking about humanity that she used to have, like a little bit more of the kind of bigger picture. And, you know, and she always, Mm -hmm. she's always had that strategic brain. Like she has that, but, it's like she's she's sort of refined into this creature that is running only on instinct, mm-hmm. you know. And so it's kind of like like in some ways she's lost from both sides of herself in that and has become this much more like sharp and narrow and refined kind of like precision tool thing. Yeah. And Bellamy has become this kind of holistic, all-encompassing, filling out skills that he previously lacked. And so just like the way that time has changed them, you know, I feel like... Yeah, it's gonna be really, it's gonna be really interesting to kind of see, you know, how those season one parallels play out. And the other thing, too, that I'm excited to watch play out over the course of this season is for Clark, I think this contextualizes her relationship, especially in season two, with Abby very differently. Yeah. You know, these are the kinds of things that she, that she was always giving Abby shit for. <laughs> you know? And, um, like, these, these are the same kinds of, like, reckless, dumbass, mom-driven, non-strategic, purely impulse-based decisions that led Abby to, like, be the person who put a gun in Finn Collins's hand because she was not in that moment thinking like a chancellor. Mm-hmm. In the moment, she was thinking like a mom. Mm-hmm. And these are the things that you do because there's no force within either of either Abby or Clark that's stronger than that, mm-hmm. than that particular love and that need to like, no matter what happens to me, no matter what happens to anyone else, like you survive. Yeah. You know, like you, my kid, like I'm going to keep you alive if I have to burn the whole world down to do it. You know? So I, I just, I think that the season one parallels with Bellamy and this season two parallels with Abby that we're already getting set up in just this little bit that we've seen of Clark and Maddie's relationship opens up a lot of space for, I think, a really fascinating clash when she's put back into a situation where the old Clark would kind of snap into action. Like, that part of her isn't gone. It's just kind of been, like, dormant. Yeah, I mean, like, you still see it, you know, when she gets taken prisoner by Legius. You know, you can see Mm -hmm. her sort of strategizing. You can see her sort of trying to pulling from the Lincoln Um, playbook yeah exactly yeah which is I mean another like amazing and very uncomfortable season one parallel is putting Clark in the Lincoln position and then sort of having to watch the antagonists be essentially in the same role that you know Bellamy and Clark were in season one Mm -hmm. and but you can see you know Clark is still Clark like she's still sort of watching them she's still sort of trying to think a couple of moves ahead about like all right what's you 
know, what's the best move here to try to keep myself and Maddie alive, you know, and get myself out of the situation. But she just is so at this point outmatched by yeah. Colonel Charmaine Dioza, who <laughs> remains my problematic oh my hero. <laughs> oh my God. Aaron, I I am like I don't I I don't have words for how gay for Dioza I am. Like I I'm just like like I know you're gonna do bad stuff and probably at least one character that I like or feel things for is gonna end up dead by your hand. But like, oh my god, never stop talking. Like, you're amazing. <laughs> she, I uh, got her voice is just like so quiet. Her and voice is incredible. Yeah. And like hypnotic and like paradoxically both unsettling and soothing at the same time. Yeah. And, like, the thing it's is, very like a snake about to strike. Yeah. You know, like. Yeah. And like the, the thing that really struck me about Dioza in this episode is not only is she, you know, strategically really, really smart, you know, like strategically thinks 12 steps ahead. She is emotionally very, very perceptive and intelligent. Like mm-hmm. her ability yeah. to sort of size people up and read them and understand what's going to motivate them, what's going to control them, what do they want, what do they need. Like she can do that so quickly and so accurately. And you can see, you know, that's why she's the leader of this group and that's why she doesn't have to raise her voice. Yes. You know, because yes. she she yes. understands she understands that to get McCreary to do what she wants him to do. She has to tell this guy to shoot him in the leg and then she has to tell the other guy to shoot the the second guy in the head and that's going to get everyone to like stay in Mm -hmm. line. You know, she understands that with Zeke, she has to sort of frame things in a different way and say, okay, you want to live, don't you? Well, here is the situation that we're in. In order to continue to live, here are the things you have to do that you just kind of have to accept. But she's, she's able to kind of like make concessions in places to keep him happy, to keep him in line, which is just mm-hmm. like, and then the way that she sort of, she can read Clark just like a book. She's like so aware of like, Clark is looking at that radio. Like she absolutely understands what's happening. You know, she knows English. She knows what's going on. She's pretending she doesn't. She's trying to get something out of me. Like she just, you know, maybe that's the thing that makes her so just terrifying and sort of serpent-like is she is one of the snakes in the garden, but because like her mm-hmm. weapon is, you know, her, her greatest weapon is psychological, it seems mm-hmm. more than it is force. Like she doesn't hit anybody. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have to, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And when, and she has like, and she called, when she calls Zeke good cop, it made me laugh so hard because it was like, you know exactly what you're doing. Like yeah. you're the center. You have McCreary to fulfill one role and Zeke to fulfill another role, but their purpose is more about keeping everyone else in line and less about her needing any bolstering of her own authority. Mm-hmm. Like they're, they're She's just playing tools. them off like, each other. Yeah, she's like, I need these two yeah. guys in the room because I need one guy where it's clear that if I let him go, he won't kill you because first he'll just enjoy your pain. And I need the other right. guy to be there arguing on your behalf so you're hoping that he's going to sway me. Like they're just mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. to be these two psychological tools to kind of play off each other with Clark. And it's just like... I get goosebumps watching that scene. Oh my God. Also, Ivana, just the tiny little sort of, the tiniest lift of an eyebrow. Yeah. Her performance is just amazing already. I just am like floored. Yeah. She's so expressive and is also subtle. But the thing that I really like about her 
You know, she has the thing that I always loved about Pike, which is that there are moments where, like, underneath the, like, you're doing horrible things and you are not on the side of the good guys and I want you to stop doing what you're doing, but also those flashes of heartfelt sincerity. Like, when she says, good, keep telling the truth, we're gonna be okay. Like, when Clark is, like, telling her about how the world ended, like, you know, thank you for telling the truth, where you're like, there's a moment where just for, like, just for a second, there hovers the possibility of a totally natural alliance between these two women where it's like <laughs> Clark is one person and there's one other person in the woods it's no skin off their ass in terms of like resources to add two more people especially if they have skills like hunting and tracking mm-hmm. Clark is smart so like, Clark does her Clark thing and like she leverages the truth with Dioza to get that trust mm-hmm. that she needs to make sure that Maddie is safe so like for that moment you feel like Dioza is not like it's so clear that she's not McCreary it's so clear mm-hmm. that she's like I am perfectly willing like if you were going to be reasonable I'm perfectly willing to be reasonable with you if you're not going to be reasonable I'm going to kill you mm-hmm. but if you're going to be reasonable with me you know like the same way that like that when Pike says to Lincoln before he executes him that he'll take care of his people and you're like I believe you mm-hmm. like I believe you because you are not an inconsistent person mm-hmm. your rules are hard and fast but your behavior is consistent and predictable mm-hmm. when you say you're going to do something like this you do it because you understand the concept of leverage you know yeah. and you're willing to make a bargain if it benefits everybody and so what I like about just kind of how shrewd she is is it sort of dangles in front of you the possibility for you're like, oh, well, they could be fine. This could all be okay. <laughs> and then it's like, ah, ha, 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 just kidding. Yeah, which is also why I think, you know, McCreary is such a great character. I think, like, I mean, like, so far we don't know much about him and he's kind of just there to be sort of, he's just kind of menacing. So, like, as a character, he's not super fleshed out. But I think as a chess piece sort of character, he is great because the because the thing about that, you know, the sort of sense of, like, you know, if Charmaine's like, we can make a deal, you know, we can work something out that's good for both of us. You want, I want to 100% believe her. And like you said, it's no, you know, no big deal if they let Clark and Maddie live. And actually to their advantage, because Clark and Maddie can tell them where to find food, where to find water, you know, what to avoid, that kind of thing. I'm assuming that these people didn't have, get earth skills classes right. while they were in cryo yeah. sleep, you know. But McCreary still exists. And McCreary is kind of like the perfect chaos agent. You know, you yeah. never know what he's going to do. He doesn't actually, he doesn't want peace. You know, he doesn't want to live a peaceful life. Like Mercury could get pissed off or bored and kill someone or do something horrific at any moment. So Mercury is kind of this perfect sort of knot of potential chaos. You know, he's the kind of like the asterisk floating around any deal that anyone makes. The asterisk is always if Dioza can control Mercury, which is a really, really cool bit of, like if you're thinking about, you know, this, this episode is so much about kind of like strategy and, you know, it's like one of those, one of those episodes where I'm like, Oh man, I wish I had time to like read, you know, read up on game theory some more so I can, you know, talk in more detail about that kind of stuff because I think, you know, it kind of like fits with that. But like Mercury is the kind of like the one X factor, you know, there's all these factors that you can sort of understand and plan for, but he's one of those X factors that you kind of can't which is like really sort of fascinating. And there's like a lot of potential in having a character like that there. You know, when Richard kind of talked about McCreary being, you know, the sort of like darkest timeline version of Murphy. And like, what I think is interesting is like Murphy, I would categorize as like chaotic neutral. Mm-hmm. Murphy can be appealed to and negotiated with because he's primarily driven by like, self-preservation like Mm -hmm. there are things that murphy wants 
And so you can get him to be part of a team. You can get him to do what is needed. Not all of the time and, you know, not easily, but like <laughs> you can work with him. Like people work with Murphy. If you find something that Murphy wants more than he wants to kind of just be like, eh, fuck you. <laughs> You know, then you can strike a bargain and McCreary is fully like chaotic evil. Mm -hmm. He has a sort of enjoyment and a sadistic glee in fucking things up in a way that's like even more so, I would say, than like than Cage Wallace, mm -hmm. who, you know, who had at least like a handful of relationships that were, you know, like, like his care for his father was genuine. He hadn't like fully eroded all of his humanity, just like, you know, most of it. <laughs> but like, <laughs> he had people and he had a father and he was doing unbelievably unethical, horrible, destructive, violent, soulless things because he sort of believed that he thought he was doing it for a reason that would benefit himself and his people. And McCreary doesn't have people in the same way that there's any kind of loyalty to them. McCreary doesn't have an ideology. I think McCreary is just yeah. like pure id. He's just like, I enjoy causing pain. Exactly. Like, he's just like straight up a like sociopathic sadist. Like, that seems to be his deal. <laughs> Did he invent those shock collars? Like, is he? Is there sort of a, a a kind of sadistic, mad scientist element of this too? Like, carefully mm. and strategically designing tools that cause the maximum amount of pain. That's its own kind of terrifying because that the level of kind of calculation that's involved in that mm -hmm. is like just sort of bone chilling. I think the closest allegory to just exactly how terrifying I find McCreary. Like, the only other thing in this show that's creeping me out more <laughs> was Chipped Abby. Oh. Like, Allie using Abby's abilities as a surgeon, using that as a torture weapon. Yeah. Uh-huh. That totally, like, cold, calculated, entirely emotionless, strategic, tactical system for the causing of maximum pain. But that was because, like, an AI was controlling her mental processes like McCreary like that's this is just who he is mm -hmm. he's the one I think we've gotten to know the least about who he was before whereas yeah, yeah. Zeke and Dioza we have little more Zeke Zeke more so yeah Dioza we got you know she's they call her colonel and we get she has yeah. that, that like amazing moment where she says to Clark I understand when the fascist government took my home, I wanted blood and I got it, which is just like, oh, fuck. <laughs> which fascist government? What did you do? Yeah. Oh my God. Also, why am I so turned on? <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. And then, and then somebody said something about SEAL training. Yeah, Zeke, when the guy is still, you know, impaled and screaming and she says, get a med kit. And Zeke says, med kit. I didn't know they touched thoracic sur surgery to SEALs or something like that. So apparently she yeah. was a Navy SEAL. So she must have been American. So I don't know. Maybe it was Trump who took her home. <laughs> right. Like if she was in the Navy, what fascist government took over her country? Because the government controls the military. So the rebellion on this ship would not have been her first experience with treason uh yeah which explains a lot explains a lot yeah which and, and actually okay like to go back to mccreary i think the other reason why the sort of like why there's such a palpable sense of like mccreary is a powder keg that is already like on fire and the lid is sort of like rattling is because of all those little moments where he defies dioza's authority and just to get back in line like right at the beginning 
when they're sort of come into the clearing and she says, fall back. And he says, we're not your army. Basically, he's like, I'm not going to take your orders. And then Clark shoots the guy and he's like, okay. And then later on, you know, uh, when he's fighting with Zeke, um, he kind of does the same thing where he's, he's like pushing her. He keeps pushing and pushing and pushing and kind of like. Yeah, like, don't forget, like, you wouldn't be here without me either. Yeah. Yeah. But like, I mean, it's sort of, reminder, and it fits with the kind of sort of, cha- you know, the chaotic evil guy that he is that, you know, he has no respect for authority, you know, just right. he's, he's not a soldier, you know, he's not a soldier. So he's not like, okay, there's a hierarchy. And I listen to what she says. She's sort of like, he listens to her kind of on a case by case basis. Right, right. And she keeps sort of repeatedly having to get him back in line. So I think that's where there's that sort of palpable sense that, you know, at some point, he's not going to listen to her. Right, right. And what's and what's going to happen? And how do you stop somebody that both has no conscience that can't be reasoned with and has weapons that nothing that any of our people have can match? Mm-hmm. What I remembered from... It was in an interview somewhere, and I can't remember if it was Jason or if it was William. But essentially, that the one piece of of McCreary backstory that I remember like flagging, and I think it could become something that that becomes important later, is that he, I think it, if I remember that he came from organized crime, that he was like oh, some yeah. mm-hmm. like a crime boss's pet torturer guy, like that was his job, and something that. Brittany noticed when she was going through screen caps yesterday after the episode was that a bunch of the characters that we saw that are kind of the like religious red shirts have spider tattoos or had like tattoos that looked similar. Mm, yeah, the guy who died had one on his neck. I remember that. Yeah. So she was kind of like, either the props department was kind of like, eh, we got a two for one deal on spider tattoos. Let's just use them all. <laughs> Or, so this is like my only sort of thought about in terms of if there's anyone that McCreary has loyalty to. Mm-hmm. Did McCreary, and this is just wild speculation based on nothing except that one fact. If McCreary went down with like a mob bust and a bunch of people from his same cohort all got like arrested and locked up together, it may be that there's sort of like a subset of people within this group that he actually cares about or trusts or has some sense of loyalty to more mm. so than he has to Gioza. If there's some kind of a connection among those people. Mm. McCreary with a band of half a dozen guys with absolutely no desire any longer to be loyal to Dioza, and him being the one who's actually issuing the commands would be mm-hmm. fucking terrifying. <laughs> yeah, seriously. So that's uh, a that's a thing that'll keep us all up nights for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> for real. <laughs> Okay, so let's talk about Zeke, our beautiful, wonderful, morally oh my god, uh, troubled little thrill seeker guy. <laughs> so my first thing that I want to say about Zeke, and I and I mentioned this on Twitter last night too. I think my favorite little slice of that scene with him and kind of of his story was how, and I don't know if you had this experience too when you're watching it, but like how jarring it was to hear things from like our time kind of crash into this story like it was the same with like with with the dad mug and the mention of navy seals Mm -hmm. but like detroit he was an a Mm -hmm. motorcycle riding altar boy from fucking saginaw you know Mm -hmm. like like all of these things that don't even exist anymore and i just felt for him so much because it was like a masterfully subtle little piece of storytelling was like that was all that we needed to really enter into 
like the grief that they're feeling like they're not yeah. like dios is not showing it mccurry is not showing it mccurry might not even feel it i don't think mccurry feels it i don't think he gives i don't thought, think he but. i think he's fine <laughs> and we haven't met anyone else yet sort of sufficiently to like you know get a sense of it from them but from zeke we got like the just incomprehensible tragedy of returning to Earth, and not only is everything gone, and they don't understand what happened, but like that sense of of not just the kind of their sort of like confusion and disorientation, and they're sort of like reacting to Clark like she's an enemy and all that, like that kind of stuff, but like the loss, like the magnitude mm-hmm. of you know, like like they were always going to be gone on a mission for such a long time that they'd return and things would be different. You know, it, it was it implied a little bit in that video message from the captain. We can talk about more when we get to the space crew stuff that potentially they weren't meant to be gone this long. Like he tried to kind of like put a, put a ghost in the machine to fuck things up and slow it down that maybe they weren't meant to be gone like a hundred years, but they were always going to be gone long enough that you, you know, you come home and your parents might be dead or your whole world mm-hmm. would have changed mm-hmm. or, you know, your kids to be grown or whatever. So it was always going to be sort of some sense of loss in returning to their world that they were sort of presumably resigned to on some level. But like, it never would have occurred to Zeke to come back and like, there's no Detroit anymore. It's not mm-hmm. just like your family is mm-hmm. gone. Your church where you were an altar boy is gone. Your motorcycle is gone. Like your city is gone. Your country is gone. The world is gone. Buildings are gone. Everything that is familiar to you is gone. It just, I don't know, it it made me feel, you know, because the premise of the show starts off from Earth's been destroyed. Like, that's sort of the foundational premise of the show. And these characters that we meet in the first, you know, four seasons, they have no memory of a world besides this, except for Becca. Mm -hmm. And so Zeke is the first person that we've, like, emotionally connected with in any way, where, like, the sadness of Prime Fire has really become a part of their story. Like it's a whole new facet of it that I just found really like masterfully done in that tiny, tiny little slice of him just sort of being like, so here's like, here's what I remember, mm-hmm. you know, and like you're the most interesting person I've talked to in a hundred years, you mm-hmm. know? And I was just like, Oh my God. Like this, like it just made me, I was like, like I had to stop the TV. I was like, I'm like, I'm so sad for this kid. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like, oh my like God. The, the old saying, you can't, you know, you can't go home again. Yeah. Yeah. Times a million, you know, like mm-hmm. where he, he literally can't go home again. There, it's not just like you said that, that, you know, his parents are there, his family is gone. The house he grew up in, grew up in, got knocked down. It's that, that entire world is wiped clean twice yeah. over. You know, yeah. like there is nothing yeah. resembling the world that he is familiar as being a world that even comes close to existing anymore. And the kind of just psychic and existential toll of that, you know, it's like, they, you know, nobody really has a lot of time to sort of pause and, and worry about it too much. But the fact that he kind of gets this quiet moment to register the fact that he is reacting to it, you know, that, that yeah. in between having to run and fight and <laughs> and interrogate and whatever you know he goes outside and he looks around and he has to realize not only is he nowhere near Saginaw but Saginaw doesn't exist roads don't exist planes don't exist government doesn't exist if you went to Saginaw it would be unrecognizable like the entire yeah. geography of this world is gone like who even knows 
like, are the Great Lakes still there? They might be gone, you know, like, right, right, exactly. Yeah. And so the kind of like, yeah, it was like a kind of lovely little moment, which is like, again, one of those things that I think that so far in the season, they've been doing so well is kind of like, giving those quiet moments a second, Mm -hmm. you know, where Mm -hmm. we get a kind of like, it's doing a little bit of double duty as both like, here's the backstory of this character, which is important because he says, you know, I could get, I was two hours from, from, um, Detroit one on my Harley. So it kind of tells us like, Mm -hmm. all right, he's the thrill seeker, you know, he's the adrenaline junkie. They called him Lieutenant. So it must've been air force. Right. So he flew planes Mm -hmm. and then he decided to go into space and now he's back and he's remembering like his fond memory of home is driving like 150 miles an hour on his motorcycle. Right. Which is obviously like this important information to know about Zeke. And it kind of gives us a sense of like, why was he on this mission? You know, probably has something, it was a sort of another adventure to go on probably, but it kind of does the double duty is like telling us about Zeke. But then, like you said, also kind of giving us a glimpse into like the feeling of what it would mean to these people to come back to this, which I thought was really nice. Like Zeke is a fascinating character because I think he's, he's the foil to Mercury and Mercury is the foil to him on a number of levels, but also just in the sense of like, like they're so interesting because they both push Dio's up and neither of them accepts Mm -hmm. her orders or what she says unquestioningly from like opposite ends of the spectrum. So Mercury is like, she's like, don't kill anyone. And he's like, but I want to, so why shouldn't I? Um, (laughs) But I like to kill. (laughs) Yeah. Why wouldn't I? Whereas, you know, for Zeke on the other end of the spectrum, Zeke is like, why does it have to be war at all? Right, right. Why do we have to be handling this conflict in a violent way? Why do we have to be doing these things the way that we are? You know, so he's kind of good. He's resistant to her sort of military leadership, you know, from a kind of like, what would his alignment be? Neutral good, maybe? I would say neutral good. And, and this is why I think that Zeke ended up on the side of... Dioza and the rest of her rebellion against his will because they needed someone to like fly the fucking thing. You know, they needed a pilot. And just in the little that we saw in that video, it sounded like he agreed under conditions, which was like yeah. no one from the crew was going to be, be hurt. And yeah. so I think that he fully like Hufflepuffed this and he basically was like, okay, <laughs> like what's the thing that's going to cause the least amount of people to be hurt? Mm-hmm. And if what's going to cause the least amount of people to be hurt is that I say like, okay, congratulations on your successful coup. I will turn this around and fly the plane home in exchange for which you have to promise, you know, X, Y, and Z. And she was like, sure. Mm -hmm. Because she's playing it from, you know, her side of it where she's like, I will say whatever I need to say to get the pilot to say yes to flying us back. She's she's like, I need someone who can pilot this ship. So I have to, you know, she's, she's smart. She's pragmatic. She knows that that means she's going to have to, you know, make concessions. Yeah. And McCreary, you know, killing the captain. And then, you know, Zeke is like, um, we had a deal. And she's like, well, I said, I wouldn't kill him. So it's like, everyone's like, (laughs) everyone's kind of playing their game, their own, their own Mm -hmm. little way. So to me, everything about who Zeke is so far is like, this is a sort of a fundamentally decent person who made some choices that were maybe at worst kind of like teenage reckless irresponsible, mm-hmm. but not in any way harmful or destructive or or with any desire of hurting other people. You know, like he didn't go into yeah. the military because he wanted to bomb the Middle East. He like he wanted to fly fast planes, exactly. you know, mm-hmm. and the yeah. military is where the fast planes are. You know, exactly. like he's that guy. Yeah. And he, it sounds like he left the military because he didn't want to kill anyone. He yeah, knows. exactly. Yeah. And he took a cushy corporate gig to go to space. Yeah, exactly. The only hard thing about this job was supposed to be the fact that it was like a long mission and you're in cryosleep for part mm-hmm, of it, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. 
but like all he had to do was fly Mm -hmm. and like we see the sign that you know the no inmates beyond this point like like he was probably totally cut off from the prisoners the crew probably had their own part of the ship like he wouldn't have interacted with them he wasn't even he wasn't a guard guard. yeah if he was if he was a pilot he wasn't a guard so it's not even like he signed up to be in charge of keeping them in line so yeah and so i was thinking as i was because there was there was also a little sort of a teaser that TV Guide put out today about next week's episode about, you know, Raven meeting her match and Mm. sort of somebody coming along. And I think that's got to be Zeke. And I think Mm -hmm. based on what we saw in the trailer where there's like those little clips of Raven and Murphy together sort of being tortured and McCreary Mm -hmm. and Zeke were there. My guess, my speculation for what's going to happen next is that Dioz is going to send Zeke and Mercury back up to space when they figure out, you know, she can get rid of Bellamy's leverage. Mm-hmm. And so then we're going to get the Zeke versus McCreary showdown. And I think that's where Zeke's, you know, sort of moral reservations about what they're doing are going to come into play. I think, mm-hmm. I think he's going to flip pretty quickly. I think so. And I think that he and Raven, like, they have so much in common in terms of, like, yeah. being, like pilots and, and rebels, you know, like, like he would totally have been the spacewalker. But you here's know? the thing. That's exactly it. Here's the thing. Zeke is 100% they're like second crack at a better version. He's Finn Collins 2.0. Yep, yep, yep. Because Finn Collins, <laughs> Finn Collins was an adrenaline junkie. You know, he was like the kind of like mm-hmm. sassy thrill seeker guy. He was also in season one. He was always the kind of like the person who always responded to every situation with like, why do we have to fight? You know, he wanted to have mm-hmm. peace talks mm-hmm. with Anya. Like, why do we have to, why does it have to be war? Why can't we talk? He was the one who, who released Lincoln. I think he's going to wind up maybe letting Murphy and Raven go. But also, yeah. I mean, like the Finn parallels are so, like in some ways, like so direct. Like he is just mm-hmm. like the non-shitty version of Finn Collins. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yet another sign that I was like, oh, they really do listen to us. <laughs> they know that we hated Finn. <laughs> and you're so like, damn it, you're going to love a Finn. Here's a new Finn. And I do love him. Good job. But I also think that he's going to wind up being a love interest for Raven, which would also uh-huh. kind of like make perfect sense for Raven that she gets her Finn back, but better. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, he does have that kind of consistent traits that we've seen in, you know, in the men that Raven has relationships with. Like there's, uh-huh. you know, there are some kind of personality commonalities between Finn and Wick and even Bellamy, although that's sort of a different kind of relationship you know that they had but like there's more a deep friendship that ha- that contains a one night stand as opposed to like a love interest <laughs> kind of thing you yeah, know? yeah but finn and wick in terms of like an ability to like at their at their least shitty to kind of like lift her out of her own self-doubt and negativity with like humor and levity and like faith in her brain but also had that kind of like roguishness yeah 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 yeah. like roguishness and sort of sass but also like i think you know he has in common with wick that he sounds like he's going to be a character who sort of who can match her intellectually maybe or like Mm -hmm, at least mm -hmm. sort of come close you know so she has somebody like i would as soon as i thought of that i got angelica's rap from satisfied from hamilton yeah (laughs) it's those first couple lines you know so this is what it feels like to match with wits with someone at your level it's just like (laughs) yep (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yep, yep, yep. 
She has been waiting for a dude who can keep up with her all her life. Exactly. So if we finally have an answer to our question, how do you solve a problem like Finn Collins? And the answer is... You replace him with Jordan Bulger, who is a wonderful, pure, angelic delight, and I love him so much. Yeah. And his hair is so much better than Finn's hair. Yeah. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, and also just, like, the fact that, like, yes, he's still, he's got a little bit of of a hot shot, but he's, like, a scrappy blue-collar kid from Detroit, and he's (laughs) not, like, you know, an entitled little, like, floppy-haired white boy. (laughs) Like, like everything about him is just like, yeah, just like, oh my God, it's so much better. What, Mm -hmm. what an improvement. Jason, if you're listening, well played. (laughs) Upgrade approved. Upgrade. Yeah, exactly. Beyonce plays in the background. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I agree. I think the next thing that's going to happen is, is Zeke and McCreary go to space to give Dioza her upper hand back. And then who the hell knows what's going to happen down on the ground. Hard yikes. Although at least Raven will have a ride home. But I do feel like I'm interested in the dynamic between Zeke and McCreary with Dioza not there. Yeah. When you have like a person in the middle who's the alpha and then two Mm -hmm. equally balanced B tier people. Mm -hmm. And then you take the alpha away and it's just like, surprise, neither of you are the boss, but you Mm -hmm. will think that you're the boss and the other one is supposed to listen to you. There is zero room for negotiation between Zeke and McCreary's worldview. It's like there isn't a midway point to be found. I mean, that's what Dioza is, but like between the two of them, there isn't. Mm -hmm. And what could be interesting too, what could sort of feed into the conversation we had with Richard is, you know, what if a rift emerges between Murphy and Raven? Like, I mean, what if, what if Raven and Zeke kind of end up connecting in a way or sort of feeling like simpatico? And Murphy feels like he sort of relates more to McCreary. Like, you know, I feel like we've sort of been approaching it as though Murphy and Raven are going to be like a united front, getting tortured together and then hopefully being rescued together, presumably both by Zeke. But it's possible that when they get down to the ground, you know, Murphy might feel differently than Raven does about sort of where to throw their loyalties in. And we also do have to remember, like, the thing to kind of keep in mind here is that it seems like one of the kind of, I think, unifying themes in the two snakes one garden framework is that space crew is by no means having an easy decision of what side to take which seems to sort of indicate that probably even among that small group there's going to be a real split and Mm -hmm. also a split potentially with or against clark Mm -hmm. in terms of what side so that so to me that says like some one or more than one members of that cohort of that space crew clark maddie cohort think that sticking with Eligius is a good idea. Mm-hmm. Presumably not Bellamy, because the other pole is his sister. But we don't know. You know, we don't know yeah. where they all kind of land. And we also still don't know, like, the big question mark is, what's the deal that gets struck with Eligius and their mining equipment and McCreary's giant, <laughs> the strap-on, the air gun, I or mean, whatever? Like the strap-on has got to be what gets the bunker open, right? Like, well, that's what only... I was going to say. Yeah. And we know the bunker is open by episode five because the description talks about Bellamy and Clark having a disagreement with Octavia. Yeah. yeah. So like it has to yeah. be open basically next episode. 
if or if yeah. it's the latest, but probably next episode. My guess is that it is that it's probably going to be like Act Five of the next mm-hmm. episode. Yeah, it's going to involve like you know the the bunker door opens and then Bellamy and Octavia reunion and then like hi, no time to chat. We got a problem. <laughs> yeah. So another little tidbit: when Clark is bleeding. And um, Zeke and yes. Dioza see that it's nightblood. So first of all, all of our they're not nightbloods. They're not nightbloods. I love being wrong I on this know. scale. Yes. Yeah. Um. So, but they did say that uh, Elysia's three were nightbloods, and then Zeke said something mm-hmm. like two suns and no sunscreen, or two suns and didn't need sunscreen, yep. something like that. Which suggests, yep. like, okay, so Elysia's three was another mission, and they went somewhere mm-hmm. with two sons. Yeah. So, interesting. Yeah, we know nothing about Elysia's one and two. Um, <laughs> and, but yeah, but, but Elysia's three being potentially, like, and we also don't know if these were, like, consecutive or, like, you know, like, like when, when NASA name something like Apollo 11, you know, it's because, like, there was a try before that that was Apollo 10, and there was mm-hmm. Apollo... And, like, it's sort of sequential. Mm-hmm. So, Lydia's could be that. Or it could be, like, they built four ships, they sent them all out kind of concurrently, which means that if the same thing or something similar happened to Elysius 3 or if it was somewhere if it was going somewhere that was just that was just by an order of magnitude further away mm-hmm. like a solar system that had two suns would be because it's nowhere near us that then they could come rolling back in any minute you know or Shannon or be bumped Coop's into character. somewhere in space well that's what I'm saying yeah. is like is Shannon Coop's character gonna like you know like is he is he a night blood from Elysius 3 I don't know <laughs> is he gonna, pull, all could is be he like, gonna pull a Troy Barnes pizza gif and just like yeah. <laughs> And and he'll be arriving on the tail end of like the third apocalypse and be like, oh my god. I can't Jesus leave you guys Christ. alone with Earth for a single century. <laughs> <laughs> well, and he and he's so young, so like they must also like have to have been cryosleeped too, because he's you know, my Chin and Kook is like in his twenties. Mm-hmm. So like if this is true, then Elijah's three would also end up having to be in the same position where it's hundred years out, hundred years back, something like that, on some super time delay. So I pinged that also, just sort of as a as an interesting like fleshing out the world building a little bit, and you know, and that we there's still a lot that we don't know about. Oh, oh, and then also God. So, Elegius is the name of the mining company. Is Gagarin the name of the prison? What's Gagarin? Oh, uh, Gagarin. I don't remember. It might have. Is it the name of the dropship? Maybe it's. It said. It said Gagarin Prison Transport. So that might and, be the name I, of the of their drop of their um shuttle of their dropship. Right. So what I'm and I have not. I keep meaning to and then not googling that name at all and see if it means anything. It definitely um, does. It sounds like a like it sounds like it's from Dostoevsky or something. Yeah, it's definitely Russian. I think it's the name of a Russian cosmonaut. I just googled Gagarub. Oh, okay. so you know that really helps. <laughs> I looked it up at some point, but not this week. Um, Yuri Gagarin um, was the Soviet pilot who first went to, who first uh, completed an orbit of space. Uh, okay. Of so then it's not the name of the of the prison. It's not like Gagarin Prison, of which this is a transport. No, no, no. It's, it's Gagarin, named, the name of this. Sh- okay. Yes, yes. Got it. Okay. Named after. Yeah. That helps. So yeah, so between that and the fact that, that this is the fourth of who even the fuck knows how many missions that Elegious Mining undertook. So, okay, so here's, so, oh, I'm so excited. I love this. Okay, so, (laughs) 
So enough Eligius missions must have been successful. Like Monty knew about this mm-hmm. and Jackson knew about this mm-hmm. in, in season four. So whether it's like one or two or five or how many of them they did, Eligius must have made enough of a go of this that everyone was like, oh yeah, this is just, this is like a thing that happened. Mm-hmm. Like sort of everybody kind of knew about, which means that if Eligius three, I don't know, like it, it there must be more. It makes me feel like there must be more ships out there and the chances that at least one of them is coming back feel like increased exponentially when you think about the fact that like they probably had more than four, you know, Mm -hmm. like this one is four and we know something about three, but like, you know, were there like 20, 30 and just like two of them went missing, you know, like are are we going to end up turning a corner into like hardcore space opera? I don't know. (laughs) And the other thing that this makes me wonder, so that's question number one was just sort of, you know, how, what's the scope? of this operation but question number two is and this ties in a little bit with the with the space half of this story but it made me wonder is mining for hithalodium the entirety of their mission questions about order 11 Mm -hmm. the actual fuck Mm -hmm. is order 11 like Mm -hmm. what's the what's the thing that dioza wasn't supposed to find out about when they say don't let dioza weaponize the cargo does that mean, like, don't let Dioza get control of all of these, you know, cryo-frozen monster prisoner people? Or does it mean don't let Dioza get her hands on this Hithalodium because potentially it has weapon properties? Like, I don't well, know. Well, Raven said, Raven said, oh, yeah, go ahead. Okay, well my, well, my third theory is, is there something else on board or some other secret mission that Murphy and Raven stumble upon when they go exploring? What were you going to say? Um, I was going to say that Raven did say that Hithalodium it was like highly explosive it was very efficient energy source like she seemed to think it was like sort of a radiation yeah. um risk so yeah it definitely like, has too much juice for the for their drop ship. Yeah, yeah like it's definitely so like that substance definitely could be very easily weaponized so that's like something that mm-hmm. could come back but i'm you know i i sort of also with you i sort of wonder if like that could easily be a misdirect where we're supposed to think that the hetalodium or whatever it is is the you know is the thing that that could be weapon the cargo that would be weaponized, mm-hmm. but we don't know. Like it could be, it could easily be something else. We we just don't know. Yeah, like there, is there is there some other you know secret cargo thing on board that they were hauling around and Murphy and Raven stumble upon it when they go on their little like morning run through the, <laughs> through the <laughs> ship that we saw in the trailer. But the other possibility is that I've sort of seen floated around that I think we've seen enough to give it some potential merit is the idea that have the prisoners in in this cryosleep form in some way become super soldiers. Like mm. even even if not all of them, but like some, you know, Kodiak is like <laughs> great big huge guy that it takes three people to kill. Mm-hmm. And so is is Order Eleven and or a kind of secret backdoor like I could I could imagine a government program designed to develop invincible super strength soldiers partnering with this corporation with the goal of like we'll give you access to these prisoners that you can use to go dig up this insanely expensive mineral that will bankroll this whole operation and is there something in the cocktail of nightblood or the nightblood equivalent that these guys were given that gave some of them like insane super soldier powers like it didn't what if it's like what if it's like i mean because we know that becca was involved with right these right, right. yeah that's what i'm saying because yeah. the nightmare yeah. question right what if what if it's a kind of form of the alley chip like a pain dead and weaponizing thing. yeah like they all like they're all 
they have like an AI or they have like a nanobot chip mm-hmm. thing and they can be hacked, you know, so like their brains can sort of be hacked because like the guy who, the Kodiak guy, like, I mean, he, he just sort of like walked in and was like, kill, you know, like he didn't seem like a person, right. you know, like he didn't react to pain, you know, he didn't walk in and say like, who are you? What are you doing? Right. You know, he was just sort of like, went in and went in there just like a, a well, and, you know, and like she a, said, a kill she said, activate Kodiak. She didn't say like, wake yeah. somebody up, wake up. Yeah. Wake up, Lieutenant right, Kodiak. Right. She activate, activate Kodiak. Kodiak. And, and, it, and she said it so mechanically that until we, like, realized, you know, that it was a person, it was, like, that could mean, like, yeah. you know, like, activate Kodiak is, like, code, you know, like, the black crow flies at dawn. Like, it's code for some, you know, defense <laughs> right, maneuver. Right. Or it could just be, like, I mean, or, or just, like, a, a technical defense exactly, mechanism yeah. within the ship or whatever. But so, like, so maybe it has some hook back to like cybernetics and to that, which is really interesting because Clark wound up getting cut off in telling Mm -hmm. the backstory to Dioza right right when she got to Allie. So this is a thing that also that's like, that's part of what, why I flagged that as like, I feel like there's something here to dig into is like, I think it's significant that still Dioza still doesn't have the story about Allie destroying the world. And at this point, like because of Bellamy and everyone showing up, does she even? Would she even trust Clark is she anymore? Ever gonna get is she it? ever going to get it? Yeah. Would she, she trust Clark if Clark told her? Point? Right. I mean, she has bigger fish to fry too. Yeah. You know, like this is Bellamy should rolling up and being like, "Yo, I have control of your frozen right. army." Like she's like, she's she. You know, I have a feeling someone like Dios is going to be like the story of how we got here. Can right. Wait. Right. You know, like I don't think. And, and but but it just you know I just realized so like the fact if this sort of like Ali. AI cybernetics thing theory is part of this. Then the fact that it's Raven and Murphy up there on that ship, especially Raven Mm. is like huge because Raven was chipped. She has like a better understand. Like she, she still has all that knowledge from Becca and Allie, you know? So like if she stumbles over something in the computer system up there, what if she, I mean, that could go all sorts of ways. Oh, like yeah. She could recognize Allie. She could recognize what, you know, what's going on. She could be like, this looks like, you know, like Allie code and then figure out that it's a kind of version of it, which means she might be able to get control of it. And then they would have their own zombie Ooh. army, which would be kind of amazing. Oh my God, like, that would be amazing. <laughs> if like Raven, Raven came down from space with like a zombie army in her oh control, like fucking like Daenerys, Daenerys, blah, blah, blah. You know yes. the one, Daenerys yes. Targaryen. Yes. No, yeah, yeah. Daenerys Targaryen. Yeah, yeah only yeah. instead of yeah, instead of instead of dragons, she has like a bunch of like zombified ex-con miners. That would be amazing. amazing. Oh my god, I would love it. <laughs> well, and and I also feel like so here's so just thematically something that I that I love about this wild speculation that we've now fleshed out that I am convinced <laughs> that we're right about is is the juxtaposition we're gonna, I'm totally convinced until it's completely just next week <laughs> yeah exactly but for now before today for now I love it <laughs> what I like about the if this does end up being true and we end up looping back to Becca Allie Chip things like that I, I feel like I don't quite know how to articulate it but there's something that I really love in the idea of juxtaposing you know, alley and technology that exists to give you artificial strength through the inability to feel pain. Sort of juxtaposed with a character like McCreary, who is fueled by the pain of others. Like, I feel like there's just something mm-hmm. kind of thematically 
that I, that idea of like of what pain is and what it does and the kind of two most dehumanizing horrific extremes of that that we got last mm-hmm. season or we got in season three with Allie as a way to like lose your humanity by losing your ability to feel any kind of pain at all versus McCreary, you know, losing your humanity by feeding off of and being fueled by pain to such a degree that you, you don't care about the people that you're causing pain towards, you know? So I just, I feel like there's just, there's something in the laying of, of somebody like Allie next to somebody like McCreary that I feel like says something interesting about the sort of messiness of humanity that exists in the middle that I am just like interested in, you know, I don't know. And I think to kind of, to build on that thematically, I think one thing that like another one of Dio's really chilling lines that I think is sort of thematically really fascinating, you know, is when she says, first we pray. And it's so chilling because of course when she says first we pray she means first we interrogate her you know and like she's just like her like sort of scary way to say bring her into the church but i think there's i think you know it's a very deliberate choice to have the church be the place where all these things happen and they don't they like they keep bringing it up you know like in the first episode we got that shot of clark burning the bodies and very sort of prominently showed the cross on the church and this is you know here dioza once again is like very aware that she's going into a church she says like you know first we pray zeke mentions that this looks like a church that he was an altar boy in and so there's something really interesting to me happening seems to me that's happening with the fact that a church is the sort of center mm-hmm. point of the action on the ground right, right now. Like, and, you know, in that village, they're not in a house, you know, they're not in like when that little Airstream mm-hmm. trailer, they're not in like an old storefront, they're in the church. Um, and, and sort of like, so that kind of is bringing together like ideas of faith that I think sort of contrast very interestingly with this sort of two poles, sort of like alley issues of pain, of science, of humanity, you know, like, are you, are you sort of reducible to your, to your sort of like your, your sort of nervous system pain response, mm-hmm. you know, like what actually is your humanity? Is it, is it your body? Is it like something totally removable from your body? Is it your consciousness? Um, you know, and the fact that all this stuff is happening is the church is sort of like pointing us towards an idea of humanity as being something that transcends it, which we talked about a little bit, I think in the first pod, but then, you know, and especially with Clark as being somebody who's kind of also lost that sense of humanity. Now where she sees, like, you know, like you said, we got that full line about like animals kill. There's no morality with animals kill or be killed where she's sort of almost like weirdly been stripped of some of her humanity, mm-hmm. you know, in the mm-hmm. sense where she's kind of just on running on animal instinct right now. I don't know. And I don't know, like it's too early, I think to know exactly what I want to do with that. But I think it's a really, really like, it's very, very interesting to me that they keep coming back. To well, that. and I think that there's, I think you're, I think you're right. I think that there's a, it hooks in really nicely. Well, I think in, in two different ways, it, it hooks in with the focus in the first episode with, with Clark on art and creativity in terms of spe- mm-hmm. like creativity and like religious and spiritual beliefs are sort of like two distinctive things that humans are the only species that have those things. Mm-hmm. But it's also when we when we were like Twitter spiraling yesterday about like, okay, if it's Moses and Aaron, like who's Moses, who's Aaron, what's the whole, you know, like that uh-huh, kind of thing. Uh-huh. So one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot and I was struggling how to like articulate it on Twitter in 280 characters, <laughs> but that I've, I've been, you know, we, we sort of knew going into this season that this was a season that's about 
story as story, like about the idea of story and the concept of story and the stories that we yeah. tell ourselves. We knew that from the sizzle reel with Maddie's kind of like fairy tale voiceover. We've known it since they started releasing the episode titles. So like that's kind of like baked into our conceptualization of the whole season. But what I think is interesting about the way that they're folding in like not just myth fairy tale things like Red Queen, Sleeping Giants, but also really diving into pretty overt Bible parallels and and religious imagery and symbolism. I feel like I'm I'm circling around this sort of thought of interrogating the way like the Bible as a set of stories that have global shaping impact because of how they motivate people to behave. Like the space between a story like Alice in Wonderland that gives us the imagery of Red Queen and and the way that that sort of you know it's it's a, they're all kind of like shorthand allegories but there's a difference in mm-hmm. the weight of an allegory like red queen versus the weight of an allegory like garden of eden or baptism or christ figures like when you're linking them back mm-hmm. to this thing that is mm-hmm. that is an origin story and a point of belief for so many people but it's like the bible is a collection of stories that have and every religious text that just operate on us like as humans in a different way than stories that don't kind of bear that weight. And so I feel like, and I don't feel Mm -hmm. like I'm explaining this right, but like there's something about the idea of, you know, using things like the Garden of Eden and the Promised Land and the Holy Land and Clark sort of being baptized into this new life. Like, you know, you see other shows use those things as kind of cheap symbolic shorthand. You're like, oh, okay, Mm -hmm. this guy's the Christ figure. Like, oh, okay, you know, this is the like allegory for Adam and Eve like like other other lesser weaker stories use those things as kind of like here's a symbol that everybody's gonna understand you know and i'm gonna like take this sort of imagery that's kind of hardwired into western civilization that we all have a lens for and use that to like shorthand some bigger theme that i want you to get and i feel like how they're being used here is already kind of like tapping a little bit at the way that story and religion as story like religion as something that is of which story is foundational but it has a whole different set of impacts on how people behave i think maybe you know we're, we're circling along uh, the first few episodes around a lot of origin right. stories both in terms of like getting the backstories but then also eden you know being that is the story of creation mm-hmm. that is the sort of judeo-christian story of creation everything that exists was created on this premise right and then you know, in the second episode, we got a kind of origin myth of Blood Raina, right? Which you know, kind of a, a different version of that. And I think the interesting thing about stories like that that explain what exists and what it means, what it means that anything exists and the relationship between things, is that in a lot of ways, that's kind of like that is the basis for how you determine right and wrong. Right. So, like for instance. If you believe, as Clark does, that everyone that exists, that we're all just animals, that a human is just an animal, ultimately, at the end of the day, we are all biological specimens, creatures, and we have a sort of drive to keep living and to keep our species and our, you know, our loved ones alive. And that that drive, that is the, that, that drive is the only thing mm-hmm. that's real. There, there's, a, there's a whole series of moral um, sort of ramifications or conclusions from that that we can see that Clark, you know, in that monologue, she sort of speaks about like, if 
this premise, if humans are an- just animals, then there is no moral question about mm-hmm. killing. It's not, a, it's not a moral thing. You live or you die. You kill or you get killed. That's it. The, the imperative, the only imperative is to stay alive. And therefore, anything that you do to do that is justified, right? right? Like, so yeah. it's not that, that story that she's telling herself about who she is and who and what hum- life is and what humanity is. That's the sort of basis on which she's justifying or making these decisions. And I think in a, in a broader way, you can see that happen with religion quite a lot. I mean, like on all, in all kinds of different ways, if you just think about the ways like, hell, you know, like creationists today, right, right. Yeah. The whole point of creationism is that if you take, you know, the, the Bible as literal truth, Mm -hmm. then a whole series of moral, you know, then you can say like, therefore everyone must follow these rules and the rules are X, Y, Z, you know? So it's, it's a premise that explains the world and kind of gives you a basis for um, morality. And the, you know, it's funny because like, this is actually something that, that I have been sort of thinking about a lot because it's, uh, I talk about in the, the chapter of my book that I'm currently editing, this is something that I talk about, which is basically the premise that, God created the world, but didn't give up ownership to it when he handed it over mm-hmm. to yeah. to human beings. Like God retains permanent ownership and human, you know, all his creatures, um, but particularly human beings have only a sort of like use right of it. That is like a sort of fundamental premise of a whole series of a whole kind of like set of schools of European moral philosophy. Which is very different from contemporary evangelical thought about like man having dominion over the world and all of its resources. Correct. Yes. And this is just in Christianity. You know, these are totally different. But like there's a whole sort of series of like that premise, like, okay, so... God, if we, if we take for granted that God did not hand over permanent, you know, retain permanent ownership, we only have use, then that means X, Y, Z. And there's a whole series of arguments of all different kinds that come from that. You know, that's the basis on which, like, you can say that there's such a thing as a kind of, like, universal, eternal moral law flowing from God. There's a whole series of arguments about what that means in terms of, you know, the morality of, or the ethics of use in terms of, like, so I work on environmental stuff like thought and history and literature. So, you know, so my argument is basically there's a whole, that that basically that's like the basis of an environmental ethos that was, that was kind of prevalent for a while, but like, so so now I'm just rambling about my book. Um, (laughs) Sorry. But anyway, I think like what you're kind of pointing towards is that stories are really important, you know, like, and we're sort of seeing on a whole different level, a whole series of levels, how stories motivate people, how they comfort them, how they, how we sort of come up with stories about ourselves, about other people, about who we are, who they are, et cetera. But I think origin stories in particular have, have a special kind of, or, or sort of unique kind of weight where the story that you tell yourself about what exists, why it's there and who you are in relation to everything else in existence, that's kind of the basis for how you figure out whether there is right or wrong. And if mm-hmm. there is what right or wrong is and what you should do, what it, you know, it's the basis of what figuring out, like, what do you owe to other people, if anything? And so, yeah, so I feel like some sort of version of those ideas are in play here, you know, like kind of in a more, in a more sort of like subtle way in the sort of like on the ground in space story so far and, and much more in a, like a direct way in the bunker in terms of like mm-hmm. the rules of right and wrong in the bunker are 100% completely premised on Blood Raina, on who she is, how she became Blood Raina, the story that they tell about like, what's the basis of her authority? You know, the story that Gaia tells about like whatever sort of 
cult of blood reina how she's a new blood red-blooded commander like the whole series of stories to explain who we are right now and why we do what we do and why what we do is right you know like it's all based on stories and there's like a kind of scary power to that if you think about something like the bible as a book of stories on the one hand like yeah it's just a book of stories on the other hand like how many people have died over in the last two millennia because of those stories Mm-hmm. You know, like we fucking kill each other over stories every day. Right, right. Well, exactly. And and that's why I felt like, you know, and this thing that we've, you know, we've talked about before that I sometimes find unsatisfying about when the show in previous sort of moments has kind of touched on the concept of, you know, of faith or religion. And this feels like it's coming at it from a totally different angle. It's looking at it in the context of how faith works in people's lives, which is like, it's a story that shapes the way that you see the world, like you said, and, mm-hmm. and shapes your perception of your own place in it. Mm-hmm. And it hooks in really nicely in a very, in a very chilling way to the conversation we had last week about, you know, Gaia being now the most, like Gaia is a storyteller. Gaia is mm-hmm. the person who, who rewrote the story. Mm-hmm. She gave everyone a new story to believe in. You know, she gave them a story about who they were that could enable all those people in the bunker to sort of, in a moment where they were lost and they don't know what they mean to each other, like, what the fuck is Wong Crew? Like, we don't don't know who we are to each other. Like, how do I relate to these people? You know, she gave them a story of themselves that made it possible for them to yeah at least sort of sometimes cohabit without killing each other or at least like go live together without killing each other except in a sanctioned way and and you know the right, right. story exactly, about yeah. why that way is the way that it is you know right exactly so you can feel like you're still you're participating in a in a moral way in the communal life of this of this community even if you've killed somebody because now the story that's been told to you is like well but under these circumstances that's now okay and you know and mm-hmm. it and I say this as a as a Catholic who is routinely annoyed with American Catholicism in particular, like the, the strategic rewriting of the cultural and spiritual tenets that you inherited to go ahead and do what you wanted to do anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and then justify it retroactively is a thing we need to talk about more. I mean, that's something that you see happening in religion all the time, all the time. Yeah. The capacity that we have as humans to rationalize a completely sort of like antithetical version of something and call it the same thing, like prosperity gospel. Like how, how millions of people have been tricked to have been sort of convinced that prosperity gospel is still Christian, you know, Christianity. When, as far as I can tell, it is like antithetical to like everything about Christianity but you know, but you get somebody, you get somebody smart enough and charismatic enough mm-hmm. to give a good story about it, and it fits what people want to do and what they want to believe in the sort of like lifestyle that they're already living. And and then you sort of and you use it as a way to back up the things that people already want to believe about themselves, or or you give them a basis to do the thing that they were going to do anyway, mm-hmm. feel kind of unassailably immoral about it. The sort of the idea that if you're if you're Christian, if you're Catholic, it's like, well, taking a life is always bad. And that is why we are against, for example, like, abortion. 
But then you can get into all kinds of hair splitting when you ask them to explain why do you then not extend that to things like capital punishment and gun control. Mm -hmm. The real reason is because I don't value those lives as highly and I don't care so much if those people live. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like it's a different, you know, it's like, but no one is saying that even to themselves. They're not articulating like that's why. Like the difference is I just don't care that much about prisoners on death row. But like babies Mm -hmm. that I understand, you know, Mm -hmm. and and so you can you can craft this whole kind of alternate theology that bolsters the things that you wanted to believe anyway and the and and your current place in the power structure like if, mm-hmm. if you're a white man you have a lot more to gain by you being allowed to keep your guns and women having no agency over their own bodies than any kind of a power structure where a much more jesus like approach <laughs> to the world <laughs> Would take away your arsenal and your pile of gold and your ability to control women. Mm -hmm. But, like, you have to reframe that theology to keep yourself sort of sitting at the top of, you know, of that heap. So I just, so I think that there's a lot in, um, in Gaia's role as the person who, not out of malice, out of, out of what she genuinely feels to be necessity, she rewrites the story kind of on the fly. What's good about that is that, you know, what's good about, you know, all religion at its best is that it can be a a unifying force for creating a sense of fellowship and community among people. Mm-hmm. But at its but at its worst and most poisonous, it does that at the expense of any kind of interrogation of whether the thing that is actually uniting you and bringing you together reflects the morals and beliefs that you held on to at all Mm -hmm. and so and also i think in these particular circumstances kind of ties into you know gaia could rewrite this story again any moment that she wants to Mm -hmm. like if gaia wants to rewrite a story against octavia what the fuck happens to octavia yeah like who comes out ahead maybe it's not octavia you know so i don't know but anyways and this is all along a long wonderful tangent but that makes me but 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 that I think the fact, like the the way you brought up the church, like you said, the the fact that that there's this kind of weight given to not just the building in this episode, but the weight given to the fact that that is the building that Clark has made her and Maddie's home. Mm-hmm. Like that's their that's their root, that's their base camp. That like that's where all the things that matter to her are in that place. That that in in a way, it's like the story of who Clark and Maddie is. It's you know like like. Clark's drawings of her mom and Bellamy in that church are in a way like a story wrapped inside a story wrapped inside a story. Like where's all these sort of layers to kind of like peel back. It also says something about the way that she's been sort of deifying them in, you know, kind of a literal way. Like they've become sort of exactly. Yeah. You know, legends and almost sort of quasi deities you know, perhaps maybe in Maddie's mind. Like when Maddie has a hard day and she thinks to herself, like, but like, what would Octavia Blake do? You know? <laughs> like, what would Sky Ripa do? You know, like, like I'm I'm hunting or I'm doing this or I'm tired or whatever, but, she, but she'd be like, but Sky Ripa would never, you know, like, yeah, like that. Mm-hmm. That same way that when you're a kid, religious figures or figures from stories that you sort of latch onto in that sort of way, are, or even like historical figures, mm-hmm. when you're a kid, like, like Abraham Lincoln is not measurably any more real to you than like Jesus or Santa Claus. I feel like they're all <laughs> true. You know, like they're all stories to some certain extent in in terms of like how they make you feel. And yes, um, and so I I feel like for 
for Maddie, who has no context for any of these people other than story. Mm -hmm. And for Clark, who's been distant for them for so long that holding on to those stories is like her link to sanity. I, you know, I think that I think that it is all sort of circling back to this idea of story as sort of an individual force in in your own life that shapes how you see things, but also as a force working on a on a bigger level Mm -hmm. you know that that can like as with as we saw like we said with with blood reina like story as a force that kind of moves nations you know that that yeah yeah picture you know contrasted with the the way that the same story of the same person you know the the myth of octavia blake um has like an intimate and kind of emotional impact on people like maddie and bellamy one last little thing and then we should go up to space um so Zeke drop. Let's drop. Which I didn't catch until the second viewing. Um, at the beginning, when the guy is still alive and impaled and screaming, <laughs> and Dio's is like, "Get a med kit," and he's like, "I don't know. They taught thoracic surgery to Navy SEALs." But he mentions that they used to have a doctor, and now they don't. And that feels mm-hmm. like a very interesting hook between Elegius. And either Abby or Jackson. Yes. And and also, the first one, like, what the fuck did he do to the doctor? Well, <laughs> he said he blamed McCreary. So I'm just, I'm assuming McCreary just killed the doctor because that some, yeah. sounds like something McCreary do. Um, but then, I, you know, it made me think, like, here's a very, here's a very dark theory. Um, so if Abby's story is about opium addiction, what if Elegius has opioids? Oh god! And they like get to her. They like Dioza like leverages her addiction and gets oh, her to god. like do something for them in exchange for drugs. Um. So first of all, oh my god! Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's I had that I hadn't even thought about about intersecting with them with them that way. I was more thinking like when you when you said you know that it's that it's noteworthy that they are not not just that they are absent a doctor but it's significant enough that it has it's textually mentioned now that mm-hmm. they don't have a doctor mm-hmm. um i was sort of i was looking at it from from the other point of view of does abby end up in a situation where an emergency doctor is needed and no one in Elegius has the skills needed to do whatever needs to be done. Is she, is she part of a complicated system of deal striking that fucks with Octavia's plan somehow because she ends up, you know, either, either she or Clark on, on her behalf, make a deal with Eligius, like, okay, like all, you know, perform. I mean, that would, that would make sense if, if, if it became a point of leverage where somebody important gets hurt and, and they're like, you can have our doctor if you give us, X, but yeah, if you give us X, yeah, a much creepier way to look at it is: is she the is she the thing being leveraged? Like, is she being manipulated in some way? I mean, we 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 know almost nothing, or I would say we know literally nothing now at this point about in in what way Abby's arc does dovetail with Elegius, but we do know that at some point, just because of that of that picture that Paige tweeted out when they were filming the last couple episodes. That she ends up in the same room as McCreary at some point, in a room that mm-hmm. McCreary has clearly turned into what could either be a doctor's office or a torture chamber. Mm. Or both. 
both. You know, with, with, <laughs> yeah, or both. McCreary is nothing if not an efficient multitasker. Um, like Murphy, they really are just the right. same guy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's something that be- because we sort of knew, you know, kind of coming into the season just from the conversation that we had when we when we met them um, in Vancouver. Uh, that one of the things that William had told me that I've been sort of like trying to kind of, you know, keep a weather eye out for is that he had mentioned that he got to work a lot with Paige. And so I was kind of like, like how, like, how the fuck is Abby going to mm-hmm. intersect with this plot line? You know, and I, and I, and we may be coming up against it. You know, I, mm-hmm. I think it's certainly possible that even if they don't have a doctor, they have a ship full of medical supplies. Yeah. Of w- which would, which would include opioids. And it also seems possible that some method of sedative drugging could be involved in either the process of putting people into cryo sleep, the mechanism by which they keep the, like, if they are, you know, like zombie super soldiers, like keep them controlled. Mm-hmm. Um, oh my God. It'd be like so- Reapers then. Yeah, yeah. Oh, shit. Oh, my God. Reaper Abby. Holy oh, my God. Shit. Oh, my God. That is freaking the fuck out. Well, I'm never sleeping again. <laughs> me, me 20 minutes ago. Wow, there's nothing on this show that's ever been creepier than chipped Abby. And then Jason's like, hold my beer. <laughs> hold my strap on. Um <laughs> All right, let's go up to let's go up to space. Spacey, space, space, spacey, space, space. Ah, space crew, I love them so much. Oh my god! Except for Murphy, who is just such a little pain in the ass this episode. Oh my god, he really is. But in a way that I'm really interested to see, kind of how something I think an interesting arc for him, where I like that it's picking up with the kind of the ground that was laid in in 501 of like Murphy's character development in terms of joining Bellamy's crew mm-hmm. was not permanent. It was deeply situational. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. I think I sort of get what's going on with Murphy, you know, we t- and we talked about it in the 501 pod, but like, man, his, him needling Imori when she was trying to pilot that ship. And it seemed like so clear to me that like, like the reason that she lost control, I think, is because she was so rattled by yes, yeah. by him, you know, by his doubt and by his little sort of like jabs. And I was just so mad at him. When you're in a bad place, you know, like that's often what people do is that they they lash out. Like they know all the sort of like little they know where all the chinks in your armor are when you're that close. And then we see that with Mer- you know, with Monty too, where they're sort of sniping at each other and and he calls Monty a coward and Monty calls him useless and you can tell that in that moment like they really like they found each other's the thing that deep down they're afraid that they really are but it was just it was really hard to watch because like you know precious Amori piloting a spaceship you know and like can can we can we talk about how fucking Everything I could ever have wanted, and and even things I could never even have aspired to, Imori was in this episode slash this season so far. Yeah, it wasn't much. Like it wasn't. It wasn't like it was a story centered around her in the same way that it was centered around like Clark and Dioza or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like every every second that Imori was on screen and every single 
thing that happened filled me with like such joy at what a journey she's gotten to go on and how like efficiently that was shorthanded. We got all we needed to get in this episode from from both Raven talking to Bellamy later, but also from seeing Amori of like of how hard Amori has worked, of how closely she's worked with Raven, of how Raven depends on her, and of what it did to her as a person to have a purpose and and work and you know and and it's just even like what Monty kind of throws in Murphy's face too, like like Amori is utterly transformed, you know, like like Amori who is used to being a uh, reject and outcast and had no one except for her brother and the grounders wouldn't touch her and you know and treated her like a freak and her whole entire life and she had the biggest fucking chip on her shoulder towards everyone you know, not just sky crew but like anyone who wasn't her brother and then eventually murphy she was just like you're all enemies until proven otherwise and 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 then so to get the reveal that the reason that she broke up with him was that he wasn't part of the family was like, like it just, I was so emotional over like what that says of, of her transformation and of how hungry she's been her entire life for a family and a community that would just let her be who she was. I get like weepy thinking about it just because Murphy was all that she had. And so she kind of put up with this bullshit because it was, because it was a relationship with someone who cared about her you know, and and that she felt like she could that she could trust. But like this version of Amori, whose strongest relationship in the group is with Raven, is an entirely different person. You know, I love the little look into how fraught the last six years must have been for her dealing with Murphy's mopey ass and how exhausted <laughs> she must finally have been. Like, it, it, I watched, I literally, I think I was telling this to Brittany, I felt like I was out at wine night with a girlfriend talking about her boyfriend and being like, like, break up with him. You are yeah. too good for him. Yeah. He is holding you back. And then this you part know, is like, sort of like, girl, I am, you, you, did the right thing breaking up with him. Yes. Like you absolutely yes. just Girl. block his number. Like don't, you don't even, you shouldn't yes. even be seeing those texts anymore. He just throws you off exactly. your game. You yes. know, you're awesome. Girl, like, give me your phone. I'll exactly. delete his number. Like yep. I will. Yeah. Like I felt, and, and then, and then she does it. And you're just like, I, and then she lands the rocket. Yeah. And you're just like, and that little like, smile. Oh my she goodness. says, like, we're, we're, we didn't die. And Bellamy says, you didn't die. And they look at each oh other and they God. smile like those smiles. That, oh, oh my God. I was so. I fully, I, I fully teared up. Oh, Bellamy and Me too. Because also, like, speaking of shorthand, I mean, there was like the little tiny moment in the first one where he, you know, kind of comes over and puts his hand on her shoulder and tells her to take a break and come eat dinner. And then the way he kind of jumps in to defend her from Murphy in mm-hmm. this episode. Mm-hmm. And and then that, where it just, again, like, we didn't need to have it all kind of spoon-fed to us. We got everything that we needed to get to know that over the course of the past six years, Bellamy has been stepping in to protect Amori emotionally from Murphy's abuse. And, yes. you know, and, and angry lashing out mm-hmm. because Amori has proved herself to be, like, somebody that they all – not just like rely on in a pragmatic way, but like care for deeply. Yeah, you know? yeah. And she's in the family now, and Bellamy is the dad, and so he's just like, no one talks to my kids that way. You Not know? even and, my other um, kids, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like it, like it felt like like you're stepping in to be like, like I am not gonna let like you two yell at each other. I adore Bellamy so much. I'm getting like 
choked up about it. <laughs> Second, he fucking he has definitely earned that best dad in the universe mug. Absolutely. Like, <laughs> yes. I mean, like that that is one of those moments that I was like, that is fan service and I'm here for it, but also fucking true because like you just watch him. Yes. Like the way that he takes care of Amori and then like, you know, in, in episode five one, like the way he like he figures out he's got he's got his problematic, you know, he's he's got a troubled son. He's got a son who wants to push him away, um, you know, but he finds a way to be there for Murphy when Murphy even doesn't want him to. Um, but then I think like also, you know, you can kind of see that like emotional awareness in Bellamy when he when he tells Harper to stay with him more because Memora doesn't need help with the technical end of it. Mar- Harper doesn't do anything of that. But like, I think Bellamy knows that Harper is contribute or like sort of role on the team seems to be like, she is the sort of counselor slash ray of sunshine. She's sort of like, when you need someone to sort of like help people who are struggling, keep going. Harper is kind of that person. And I feel like maybe like Bellamy left Harper there as a sort of like, he knew like, okay, Amori needs Harper. And we need to separate Murphy and Amori. So, all right, Harper, stay here. Everyone else with me. That's I like that way of actually. I hadn't I hadn't thought of it that way in in terms of the selection of of Harper isn't because Amori needs a second pair of hands to run these diagnostics, but if Amori needs a girlfriend right now. So I I when I said earlier, like I had I have two I have two sort of nitpicks with the season so far and they're minor and I have faith that they'll both get fixed but Harper is one of them and and the part of the reason is because I feel like everyone else almost almost universally including new characters that have been in like one episode so far I feel like we're getting foundations laid for in like for either oh I see what your art could become or like holy shit how did that happen you know, I can't wait to fill in the blanks, but but a sense of like where you're going. And what I'm waiting for with Harper is any moment that Harper has that is about Harper and not about Harper forwarding the emotional journey of another character to sort of move them into the plot place they have to be. You know, like Monty needs to be reassured. So he, you know, agrees to go back down to earth with everybody else and and that doesn't mean that it isn't genuine it's just like she's sort of being utilized in that like it's it's shorthanding their relationship and it was a really sweet scene but her motivating force was harper is the thing that's going to get monty to do what monty has to do for the next part of the story to happen and i also felt like you know like a little bit with the same thing that's happening with Amori. It's like Amori needs to be reassured. Like both both Amor- Amori needs to have the seed planted that Murphy is potentially forgivable if he gets his shit together. Uh-huh. <laughs> which seemed like kind of some foreshadowing the fact that that will be a part of the journey that Amori goes on this season. Is like, does she want to take this guy back? But also Amori needs to be bolstered and reassured and supported so that she can do the thing that she needs to do. And it's like, like in it, and I see where it works on two levels in that like, Harper just is a person who does that. Harper makes people feel better so that they can do the things that they have to do because that's just like the kind of friend that she is. So like, it isn't that I don't feel like it works and that it doesn't come from anywhere. It's that I still don't really feel like I know much about who present day Harper is yet or what's going to happen to her. And if she's going to have a role in the story that's beyond kind of being an appendage to Monty's story of which much more emotional groundwork has been laid in terms of like why Monty feels the way he feels, what his ambivalence is, but going back down to earth, I get what Monty's story is, is potentially 
teeing up to be. Yeah. Just from what we've seen so far. And Harper so far has been like, she's a piece of the Monty storyline. And she has been for a couple other sort of, you know, moments among the space crew people. She's been the reassuring person. But like Monty offered to stay with Raven to like, so presumably like, leaving Harper behind, even though they all assumed it was temporary, you know, but like, but like Monty was like, I'll stay, I'll do the thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and Harper got like a little bit, but it was like, if we don't circle back to that, that's a problem for me. Mm-hmm. Like, if we don't unpack how that feels to Harper mm-hmm. or, or why Monty's desire to not go back to earth is stronger in that moment than his love for Harper and desire to be with her. Like, like, so that's what, that's what I'm saying. Like, I haven't given up hope yet because these are, like, big things that there's totally time left to unpack them. I guess for me, I'm sort of like, where's Harper's agency? Where's Harper as a person beyond kind of just motivating other people to do things? Is she going to get a story that is that sort of lets us into her internal journey and her own kind of interior life a little bit because it seems like what's hinted at is really interesting like what's hinted at that she's she's recovered enough from the trauma that she went through on earth that she feels totally ready to go back there like she doesn't she doesn't have the same like earth equals site of trauma kind of like knee-jerk sort of trigger reflex that monty does where he's like going back that place is going to make me that person i don't want to be that person i want to just like stay here and shut it all out. And and Harper's like, we're fine. We can handle it. You know, so I think that there's there's something interesting in kind of the magnitude of the healing that she clearly did in, you know, in space with Monty surrounded by her friends. Mm. So I, I guess I feel like, you know, if I have any nits to pick, and this is incredibly minor, like in a in a season that so far is firing on all cylinders, this was one of my two little things where I was like, I'm just I'm just still like a little bit unsatisfied at how she's there. Like she's present in all of these space crew scenes and, and it felt like everybody else kind of has gotten a little bit more sort of, I don't know, light shined on them. But I also feel like part of that is that this episode really was more like, even Monty didn't get that much, you know? So it's sort of like, I think some of it is just kind of like the deck shuffling. Like there isn't room for everyone to have a story everywhere. So it totally could be that like episode five, we get like, oh, here's the big Harper thing. Like I'm not, like I'm not panicking yet. Like I haven't like given up hope. I'm just kind of like already three episodes in. I'm like, I feel like the absence of a Harper arc is is noticeable only because everyone else on Space Crew, I'm like Murphy, yep. Raven, check. Bellamy, nailed it. You know, Amori, hell yeah, Harper, question mark. I very much think that this was like the relationships in Space Crew that we were sort of unpacking the dynamics of and really kind of emotionally centered on very much were were Murphy and Amori's and and Bellamy and Ravens. And so mm-hmm. like even even Echo, like like Echo was was and this is sort of I guess my my other thing where I was kind of like, hmm, it's like Echo was was present but echo's connection with bellamy was not what bellamy's story was in this episode like he and echo kind of interacted the same way that he interacted like he you know he had more time with amori than with echo so it was kind of like yeah it was it was striking it was striking i think um i mean echo was again like very important to the story in her as a sort of strategist you know like she was the one who was yeah as echo yeah as sort of the one the one with like 
the best military strategic brain, you know, the sort of the one to say, if there was anybody on that ship, they would shoot us down, you know, like Murphy's right. Like, like how this, do we use this as leverage? Yeah. Uh-huh, exactly. Like, how do we solve the problem of like an, an, a frozen army that can wake up and attack us at any moment? Um, but yeah, I think it was really, you know, it was sort of, there were moments that were conspicuous in their absence um yes. so like all yes. of all of there's like lots of little sort of shippy shots of Monty and Harper holding hands when they're scared on the shuttle or sort of looking at each other and smiling when when Raven makes the joke about zero g sex and and only of them like nothing there was no sort of like the camera didn't cut to Monty and Harper like there are two couples to get you know right. supposedly together right. on in those moments and the camera and then we only saw the sort of couple reaction from Monty and Harper um, so like that was kind of conspicuous as absence. And then also like the scene where Kodiak wakes up and attacks, uh, attacks them, you know, so Bellamy and Raven and Echo all fight him, you know, we get that sort of epic battle. There's, I mean, that would be like a logical, mo- you know, moment to have two people who are supposedly sort of together and, you know, like in a romantic relationship, kind of like turn to each other, like, you know, like have it be a thing where, Right, oh my right, God, I yeah. almost thought I died. And there was like nothing, you know, like there's no, there's another moment sort of, I was half expecting a moment there and there was no moment. Yeah, it it felt, it didn't really feel like either of them measurably treated each other differently or less urgently than they treated Raven. It felt like it was, yeah. like, it was a kick-ass three-way battle scene team up. Like it was an awesome scene and I loved, you know, I loved the urgency of it. I loved getting to see Raven fight and, you know, and that they all played a role in like bringing this guy down. Like it was great, but it made me what I felt like. If you lifted out the scene in 501 with a kiss, would we know from anything else that's happened that they're in a romantic relationship with each other? Like I, like, And I think the answer is absolutely no. Yeah. So to me, I sort of feel like if it was me, I feel like the choice that I would make in this part of the story is either you need much more Becco or no Becco. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like I either because like again, either it's a part of the story, either it's like a central part of, right. of their story, you know, like both of them, Bellamy and Echo, or right. it's not. And Right now, it really seems like not. And I'm sure that it will come back at some point. Right. But it's weird right now that like, again, like like you said, if you took out the scene with the kiss at the end of 501, everything makes perfect sense. And in fact, more sense without that scene right now than with it, you know, which is just kind of like, huh. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and again, and the reason, so this is my other, like similar with Harper, where it's like, again, like I have not yet given up hope that it will come into play in this story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of episodes to go. Yeah, exactly. What I worry about is we are through the entirety of the phase of the narrative in which Bellamy doesn't yet know that Clark is alive. Yeah. So what I worry about is so from here on out, any developments that happen or any sort of references back to the relationship between Echo and Bellamy being romantic like they're going to get triangulated by the fandom by the viewers around Clark Mm -hmm. as opposed to being like what if we had sort of unpacked it more at the beginning of this episode when it still was only about Bellamy and Echo Mm -hmm. and their relationship with each other Mm -hmm. like now we're out of that part of it like now we're the place where it's like we're never gonna get a sense of who were they when they were together on the arc you know I don't think we're ever gonna get that kind of unless we get maybe like flashbacks like it it sounded they would be helpful but it sounded like from everything that I've 
I've heard from the actors who are in Space Crew from what it sounds like. I don't think there really are any. I don't think there are. Yeah. So that's, that's so to me, what it feels like is I mean, I think the worst case scenario here would be putting it in a season one Finn Redux obnoxious love triangly kind of position or something where it's like Bellamy Echo Clark can't be allowed to be in the same sort of storyline. Right. Like when Bellamy was with Clark, he doesn't remember that Echo exists. And then when he's exactly. with Echo, he doesn't like, yeah. which is like the problem that happened with Bellamy and Clark and Lexa in the first right. half of season three, where Clark just Instead like. Instead of acknowledging yeah. that Bellamy and Lexa had a relationship right. the way Clark and Echo like they had were, a relationship. They yeah. were trying to avoid the love triangle so hard that they just like, they like swerved. Backed up into a love triangle. Right, yeah. exactly. But like, of the most bizarre kind, you know, that. Right, right. Which yeah. Is, so, yeah. <laughs> so I, so, and, and I, I just sort of feel like I think there's no way out of that that doesn't do a monstrous disservice to both Echo and Tasia. Yeah. And I, but like, hey, look, what I really want out of the storyline, and this is where I sort of felt like, I guess it left me unsatisfied because I was like, am I going to just like not get it at this point? It's like the idea of, how does the fact that the relationship between the two of them was romantic, like the way that it unfolded as it's been given to us textually that it unfolded, like how did that change them both? Like not change their situation in terms of how a ship interferes with another ship or whatever, but like how did it like change them as people? I do in a way feel that like bear fruit. Yeah, I do feel like we're gonna get that. Honestly, I mean, like the one thing that yeah. was heartening to me about this episode is like the Becco moments were conspicuous in their absence. But Echo got a lot of good stuff with the other characters, you know, like we got a yes. sort of little taste of her relationship, you know, with Murphy, you know, with their she kind was of- wonderful in this whole episode. Oh, yeah. Like, she was the best version of Echo. Yeah. Like, I love this. Episode. And this sort of like yeah. sniping back and forth with Murphy about like, you yeah. know, I can multi, you know, and like I missed your dumb little jokes. Like we got a really good sense of like, okay, Echo has like real relationships with these other people, you know, like she yeah. has a role on the team, you know, she has yeah. like everyone listens to her and they know kind of like, okay when it comes to like strategy we turn to Echo you know like I feel like this episode did a good job of giving us a sense of how Echo fits into Space Crew as a whole and not just as Bellamy's girlfriend which I think is in terms of like Echo having an arc and having like you know sort of being more dimensional and having other relationships I feel good about that and I do I mean like we also got Jason tweeted out behind the scenes shots of like a really, really emotional scene with Clark and Echo later in the season. Yes. Which I feel yeah. like has to have something to do with this, you know, like whether it's a kind of like, yeah, yeah. you know, actual straight up like, hey, we're both in love with Bellamy, you know, kind of like thing. Or if it's just like a moment of Echo explaining I mean, just like a sort of, that makes me feel like at least more comfortable thinking that the fact that she and Bellamy had a relationship will bear fruit in terms of it was important to Echo's emotional development, learning to sort of like love and be loved and have a relationship with someone that's reciprocal and where she's not a tool, you know? So like, I do sort of feel like, all right, I'm not super worried that Echo is going to get completely shortchanged, you know, that there won't be some, that there won't, there isn't like a significant emotional arc for her. I do feel like maybe like there's still, there's a possibility that she will get that story in a way where she never had to have a romantic relationship with Bellamy. She just had to have like a really, like she could have the kind of friendship that he has with Raven and still get the same story, which like, which on the one hand, from like an in-story perspective, I'm like, that's fine. I'm totally totally fine with that story that's totally fine but on the fandom side I'm a little bit like so why did we as a fandom and Tazia as a person have to go through the grief <laughs> of everyone 
everyone losing their goddamn minds and like sending right. horrible hate to Tazia and to like anyone who liked Becco. Like my friend right. Elizabeth writes Becco thick and like she she like literally she's like I can't post it because I will get attacked. Right. And she like right. mentions like Becco in a thing. Yeah. Like she has a note on her thick that's like please don't tell me your feelings about Becco in the comments because I don't want to hear them and still like her all. And it happened again today. It happens yeah. every single fucking day. Yeah. So like if it does wind up being a sort of thing where the relationship is important but is never like explicitly or had to be romantic or like textually romantic in a way to make that happen I am going to be a little bit like ugh do we really have to do that? Like, you could have never even had to deal with the, like, specter of a love triangle at all by simply not having them kiss. Like, if you're gonna do it, then fine. Like, have it be a relationship. Have it be a real relationship with real stakes. But that means also that you're gonna have to, like, deal with the fact that it looks like it's gonna be some kind of love triangle. So, like, cool, whatever. Like, not every love triangle is bad. You can write it. I don't know. I'm just, I'm sort of like, I think there's a lot of ways that in canon... The way things are going right now, there's more ways I think it could turn out where I will be perfectly happy with the story that Echo gets in canon. Like, I think probably it'll be fine. Yeah. But there's also a lot of ways where I can just sort of be like, okay, but we did we really have to deal with that? <laughs> that's, that's kind of, that's how I'm sort of feeling too, where it's like, I feel like three episodes in, laying all of this groundwork, it should either feel as urgent to the stakes, you know, as like Murphy and Amori's relationship, yeah. Kane and Abby's relationship, yeah. or Monty and Harper's relationships. Like We should have, a f- it should be discernible that those two characters have a special relationship at all. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and it didn't and I kept thinking like this whole episode I kept thinking I'm waiting for some moment and like I said like this is a version of Echo that I absolutely adore yeah. I would, like, literally die for this Echo walking around making snarky comments sword out and yeah. vest yeah. and it's like I'm in love with you and I will say like I do agree that our big fear for Echo going into the season and the, especially the more it kind of came out where I was like oh okay so like the romantic relationship thing is going to happen like the big worry then of course is like is she going to be reduced to like is she going to get Gina Trace. You know, is she gonna get Gina? Yeah, she's either gonna get killed or get minimized in the story, yeah. or just given short shrift or being used as a stepping stone. Like she exists for no other reason than just to be a ship obstacle, and that's shitty to everybody. Mm-hmm. And, and so, what I really, 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 really do totally like and appreciate is that I do like I agree with you. I think that they're being really careful to set up the importance of the whole family unit and her place in that family unit as being things that are really value to her so it's like I agree like I am confident at this point that everyone understands that there's more to Echo than just being like an interstitial fling with Bellamy mm-hmm. like she's a character with significantly more importance than that and they're giving her more to do and what I'd like to see like what I think could be a way that it plays out that could be really interesting and like if Bellamy and Echo do break up this season I think the most I think satisfying I guess from my point of view version of it happening would be like Echo is one of those sort of battle Hufflepuffs who kind of grafts on to whoever is the leader mm-hmm. you know that's how she was raised with Naya that's the entirety of the kind of social hierarchy of Asgata when Naya left she became that person for Roan so you know I think on some level is there that innate part of Echo that feels like you find whoever's in charge and you devote yourself entirely to becoming that person's person because that's how you're wired and that sort of unfolded into a romantic relationship with Bellamy but not in a way like not that she was in love with him mm-hmm. which is 
kind of like, this is like a different way of being Bellamy's support and right hand and person and anchor the same way that she was with Roan, just like in a different context. Mm -hmm. But her sort of fundamental inherently like, I'm your person. Mm -hmm. I'm your person that makes you the leader able to do your job. Mm -hmm. And that with Bellamy, like that plus attraction in a way that she wasn't like attracted to Roan or attracted to Naya shifted the grounding of it, but still left it like Echo is a person who is fundamentally like entirely driven by loyalty. Yeah. And now all she has left, the person she has to be loyal to is Bellamy and this little cohort of other people. And so what could be, I think a really nifty way to let that play out into a bigger role for her is like returning to the ground, shaking everything up as she knew even before Bellamy did, like that she knew that it was going to do, you know, turning everything sideways for everybody in every single possible way. Does that kickstart an arc for her that becomes about stepping out of that loyalty mindset? Like not that she like turns her back on like the family, but more like who are you on your own two feet without a person to sort of think of yourself as like I'm their right hand person. Mm -hmm. You know, like on like who is Echo on her own and how does her relationship with that sense of loyalty is that challenged when she meets up with one crew and there's people that she knows. Yeah. You know, and people who have a different kind of lens on her. So I feel like there's a lot of ways in which Octavia, in which the survivors of Ice Nation in the bunker, in which kind of a shakeup of her sense of self, of her relationship with Clark. There's a lot of things I think that they're sort of teeing up that I'm really excited to see with her. I just feel like I'm at a place where it's like, I either want a bunch more Becco, so I'm like, yes, I get exactly why you did this. I get exactly why this is a choice that was made and what their relationship is and how it has changed them and why it matters and all these kind of ways where it's like super, super textual, the same way it is for Memory and for Marper in those scenes. Or I want Tasia to like not <laughs> have to hide from Twitter, you know? Yeah, like, seriously. So, yeah. yeah. All right, we should move on because I'm going to literally pass out where yes, I sit so within so like, I only have like 45 minutes left to be and we have so much left to cover. Okay, okay so, so Braven. <laughs> Braven, oh my God, that scene was like, I mean, okay, first of all, them sitting around scrolling through the list of <laughs> convicts sassing each murder, other. Murder, arson leading in murder. <laughs> arson leading to murder, murder. <laughs> and all of Raymond's um, little shots, like, I just love, I mean, like, I think, like, you know, Bellamy's the best dad in the universe, I think, but there's also kind of sense of, like, he's the oldest brother, yes. you know, and, like, Raven's, like, his younger sister, like, the oldest sister, but, like, be his younger sister, and just, like, those great little moments where she's, like, where he's, like, I'll stay, you know, I'll do it, I'll stay here, and I'll, you know, do whatever has to be done um, with the prisoners at the end, and she's, like, first of all, it would take me days to teach you, second of all, even if I did, you would screw it up, and that, like, <laughs> just, like, that hilarious, like, and he's, like, I just, like, a lovely little moment you know like again one of those like little lines that just reveals so much about the relationship both in terms of like you know like joking around in this really difficult moment but then also just kind of like you can imagine up on the arc for a while they try to assign Bellamy any kind of technical task and he just like completely fucks it up and after a while Raven's just like okay so you were a janitor last time right so how about you clean and I will computer because (laughs) you cannot be trusted yeah 
<laughs> and then the, um, you know, this, I love that little, uh, you know, the little sort of throwaway backstory scene where he's sort of yes. talking about like, these are all murders. These are all murders that we could do. And it's interesting because it's, you know, clearly. So at that point, they didn't know, like Bellamy and Raven don't know yet that the prisoners are in cryosleep. So Raven says at the beginning. They think they're descendants. They think that they're descendants. So she's like, whatever, those are their ancestors. You know, like great grandpappy Blake had how many PhDs? You know, he says four. So there's a kind of like, well, and you don't have any. Which like, first of all, <laughs> hardcore, like in his genes, nerd Bellamy Blake confirmed. <laughs> Come from a long line of giant, giant dorks and made me very happy. Um, but secondly, like that was a really interesting moment because there, so there was that moment where she sort of references his ancestor kind of saying like, okay, well, like your ancestor was this and so, and you're different. But then earlier in the episode, when they were walking up to the doors and it said no prisoners past this point and, you know, again, there's a kind of moment of like nervousness and then Raven saying like, don't worry, like those are the people, you know, the ancestors, the people now aren't prisoners, they're survivors like us. There's a kind of an interesting, I mean, obviously there's a sort of parallel being drawn there between the delinquents and the Alicia's people, but I think there's there's kind of also an interesting sort of like little thread there having to do with ancestors versus descendants. There's a kind of like kind of returned a couple times to this idea of like, you know, where did you come? What, what, again, like a different version of origins, you know, like this is right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Like who, who are you in terms of like, who is your family? Who did you come from? You know, like how it even like a sort of sense of like, I don't know, there's something like evolution, you know, like a sort of sense of like, what did you inherit from them and what have you lost? And it was, our first kind of textual way of addressing that something which I just I guess had not necessarily thought of before but like that everyone who was who grew up on the arc like the stories that were passed down don't begin and end with Unity Day like that along yeah. the way the stories of who you were descended from that arrived on that arc and that lineage was something that people would know and this had not sort of mm-hmm. occurred to me that like an ancestor of Bellamy is going far enough back to a time when PhDs exist you know <laughs> Yeah. Would be a story that Aurora would have told him, but like, of course she did because her parents mm-hmm. told her and their parents told them and that's how everything works on the arc. But it was like another slice of the world building alongside the Zeke stuff that I just hadn't considered thinking mm-hmm. about like, this opens up a lot of like, what do all of these people know about the people from whom they're descended and like those stories getting handed down and handed down, you know, like who does Bellamy think that he, how does he think of himself or see himself in the light of this legendary astronaut, Kagarin mm-hmm. maybe, you know? Mm-hmm. who like mm-hmm. who might even be a real person that we would know depending on how many generations back Graham Heavy Blake was. Yeah. So it's just like another another little lens into how they see themselves, how they see the world and the picture of history that they had on the arc and how that's contrasted with like now they're going to be meeting people who are from that time and yeah. can challenge mm-hmm. those stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and like and also kind of a reminder that what they know about life before Prime Fire 1, you know, before the first apocalypse. Again, it's just stories, you know, it's stories that were passed down, you know, whatever videos they were able to pull up, if there were books that were still around, and like the sort of the confrontation between the myth of life pre-apocalypse that they learned, you know, like in history class on the arc mm-hmm. or in like an English class on the arc or whatever, right. like you said, is going to have to sort of contend with the people who lived it with someone like Zeke being like, I'm from Saginaw and I had a Harley Davidson, you know, and like I lived that life. I lived in that world, you know, like I inhabited that world. And, you know, in his memory, that's more familiar and more recent than 
anything that's happened to them in their lives. So that's just kind of like thematically, I thought it was a really interesting little thread. And I think you're right. It kind of dovetails very nicely with these themes of stories and identity and what's the link between your past and your future. Right. You know, like how much of that shapes who you are, like what gets lost and what gets preserved and what gets recovered that I thought was just like a small thing, but I thought it was really cool. Well, and and it's a small thing that seems to potentially be like opening up, you know, like you don't drop any detail like that if it isn't going to kind of come back and have impact later. And so like, what is the impact and meaning and the story significance to this new thing that we now know about Bellamy? And is that like, are there people on the mining ship who like will know who great grandpappy Blake was? Right. Yeah. You know, like, like, is there a link to it? Like, is somebody related to him? Like, there's all kinds of different ways that it could sort of feed into the plot in like a direct way. Like, it sort of felt like shining a little light on a thing that's a new piece of the lore that I just wonder, like, is it, you know, like, and maybe it's just as simple as it's sort of a backdoor into another sort of ancillary set of stories that we know Jason is interested in writing. Mm-hmm. But also, like, it could bear fruit in this story in a mm-hmm. number of different mm-hmm. interesting ways. I think another interesting place where kind of we get a little sort of brush up against story. Well, like, another sort of interesting thing. So Monty has heard stories about miners in deep space. Right. You know, is sort of like legends about it that they're encountering now. Um, I thought it was also really interesting that the first Clark mention that we got on the ship was Clark's namesake, Arthur C. Clark. You know, so we get Raven mentioning the famous Arthur C. Clark line, um, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, which is fascinating in that moment where they're sort of like confronting the reality of this technology. You know, and Echo still being in a place where she's sort of like, a few years ago, I wouldn't have had the framework to believe that this is real. And that Raven's go-to is, you know, a fiction writer, a science fiction writer, Mm -hmm. was, I thought, kind of an interesting way too, where sort of, a nice little sort of gesture to the ways that like that what we imagine to be possible through story is a lot of times what inspires people to make things real mm-hmm. you know and like in a kind of literal technological way and a bunch of you know in addition to a bunch of other ways but like the way that that scene built to transition into some of my Belark feels for a second um, <laughs> the way that that scene sort of built from that little mention of Arthur C. Clarke to the debate about what to do with the army and Murphy dropping the mention of Clark as a like bomb like you can tell that's like a third rail like bringing up yep. Clark like Clark only died Mercy so that said it. exactly yeah. like only Clark died so that bl- I mean like it feels like if they were back on the ring that would be another thing with like mentioning how many days it's been you know it's like alright yep. yep. do you want to clean the toilets or do you want to <laughs> you know <laughs> like yep. this is yep. verboten like you don't it was like clearly like because it hit Bellamy so hard you know it's like obviously not something that they say out loud a lot but it was like a kind of fascinating moment of like and and, and they you know and Clark is a kind of figure who has also become a sort of legend um, and a kind of like Clark is almost at this point for Bellamy a story that he tells himself to decide what's right you know like she's a sort yes. of like like what would Clark do he has to run it through like if she were here like tell himself a little story if Clark were here Clark would do this or Clark would say this so the way that she is sort of brought into that moment as shaping the sort of like force I thought was really obviously I squealed a lot <laughs> <laughs> kind of like the build of that was like really interestingly and kind of yeah yeah another another piece of really deft shorthanding of what that six-year journey has been like for him and how he became the man he is when we meet him again because he's been continually like you know and and, and we knew this like this was something that was said but like seeing it is really lovely like yeah. that head heart balance that he like the last thing that she asked him to do before she died so he could live was to like be this person 
person. And he, so he was like, all right, I'm going to be this person, you know? Mm-hmm. And even the realization that he has that she didn't die, that that part of the story didn't happen, like, he still spent six years becoming that guy. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. E- that even after Murphy said that, that Bellamy is still like, Murphy, I really want to know what you think. Like, I'm not... Yeah. Uh, you can self-select out of this group, but I'm not going to be the one that asks you to leave. Like, yeah, I'm not yeah, yeah. The one well, and also just, just Bellamy being like, we make, we make decisions together. Every person in this yes. group is still valued. You know, that's a moment where Bellamy yeah. is saying, you are still one of us. I uh-huh. still value your opinion. You know, like, yeah. I want to hear it, even though, like, it's a little bit like, he's obviously not going to change his mind, you know, necessarily. But that's that head-heart balance. That's the yeah, head yeah. tempering the heart. So it isn't just kind of like a knee-jerk, visceral emotion reflex. Yeah. And it's the heart tempering the head, where it's like, logically, we don't really need to care what Murphy thinks because Murphy doesn't care about any of us. But so like, it's like that sort of perfect sweet spot in the middle of both of those things, you know, like the best of both of them because it's sort of moderated. Yeah. You know, that he can sort of say like, it's important that even if the decision is made that Murphy feels like he still belongs. You yeah, know? yeah. And I keep reaching out to him over and over and over again as often as I need to to make sure that he feels like he belongs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And also just like... <laughs> The sort of hilarious irony of Bellamy once again being forced with having to decide whether to kill 300 people. There is this right. hilarious. <laughs> exactly 300 There's people. this hilarious Tumblr post I saw yesterday that was something that was like, it was like Charmaine or Dioza. Do you think you could really understand how it feels to like have 300 lives in your hand or something like that? And Bellamy's like, I don't think you understand how... <laughs> Often in my life, I've been in the moral quandary of killing approximately 300 people. <laughs> like, not I literally, like, I did that too. I was, I know, I literally, I was like, like that was the one part where I was sort of like, like, is, like I did laugh a little bit. Where I was like, yeah. oh, 300, you say? Oh, interesting. Well, Bellamy. <laughs> May I lay this on a little thicker? Yeah, exactly. Just so you're clear. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's a good shorthand to kind of show, like, that does show us how different Bellamy is now, too, that he's sort yeah. of like, all right, let's stop and think about this. Like, strategically, okay, they are a threat, you know, but these are 300 lives. You know, what you have to think about the fact that we would be killing 300 people. What does that mean? What is the level of threat that is sort of necessary for us to feel like it's okay to do this? And you you know, you think about like the Bellamy of this scene versus the Bellamy of season three, you know, where like it was kind of like a, a similarly theoretical threat that the grounder army posed. And, you know, Pike sort of appealed to that fear and he was willing to see, you know, like in that in that situation, Bellamy basically calculated like even the potential that those 300 people could be a threat to my people means that like the best move is to just just kill them, just kill them before they can do anything. Versus now when he's like, but it's even worse. And it's like there are 283 of them and literally seven of us. Uh, <laughs> yep. like, and they're asleep you know like this is as simple as right. pie and he's still just like those are 300 lives we have to stop and think about this like is there a way that we can solve this problem that doesn't involve killing them and I think you know it's like a lovely example of like how far Bellamy has come and how sort of holistic and, and integrated a leader he's become and then also just a sort of like it was a great little scene for sort of like space crew as like a fantastic team you know like everyone yeah well like having an echo yeah being, like having a little moment of like Murphy's little nod, like he agrees with Echo. Mm-hmm. Like the like two, the two little... sort of like, st- like Echo is the like military strategist. You know, Murphy is the sort of like he 
here's what we got to do to survive. You know, Raven being able to identify like the technical possibilities that were open to them. And then, you know, Bellamy basically like, you know, and the kind of like the thing that Bellamy has always been best at, whereas it's sort of like he can like synthesize all of these potential things and say like, okay, if we do X, you know, like, why don't we do X? You know, like this plus this plus this plus this equals if we do this and then we have leverage, you know, so he's sort of able to right, kind of right. like find that solution out of all of this. But like every single person's input was, you know, necessary to reach that final decision. So it's just sort of like, it was like, like a cool moment of sort of like, it was like an Avengers moment for Space Crew, you know, yes. sort of like super yes. group, you know, like everyone's kind of like with our powers combined, we are Captain Daddy. Yeah. Yeah. We are Captain Daddy. <laughs> Oh, oh, you're a beautiful human. <laughs> and well, that's one of the things that I that I liked about, I mean, like you mentioned, you know, when we talked at the very beginning, like just the, the sort of insane action movie tension of that entire sequence of everything that happened on, on that ship. It really allowed everybody on Space Crew to sort of be shown in their best light, mm-hmm. you know, like their, their most, um, or I guess not in Murphy's case, maybe not best, but like most, most essential, most mm-hmm. Like Murphy at his Murphyest, Echo at her Echoiest, Emory at her Emoryest, like these sort of like core selves that they've become and how they all play into and how sort of developed as a group, each kind of like filling different needs and roles. And it really so I, I'm I'm just I'm so intrigued at how that that dynamic is gonna kind of carry out on the ground like they've built like the hard work that goes into building a partnership of trust especially when you have people like murphy and maury and echo who are not i mean even even bellamy with some of them like who are not hardwired to be open-hearted and trusting the way Mm -hmm. somebody like harper is for example yeah exactly so the hard labor that went into building a relationship where everyone like the second murphy sasses and maury everyone is like don't you talk about my daughter that way and like throws (laughs) themselves around the bullets for her like that you know like work went into building that dynamic and uh-huh. and so i'm just so excited to see like when you when you put that battle unit you know that squad that family into this kind of emerging, you know, chaotic situation that's happening, how do they all kind of use that dynamic to sort of like, how does that play into the bigger story? And the, but the other yeah. thing, is, I think just sort of structurally, I think in terms of what you mentioned before about the kind of the really lovely build towards that final Clark Bellamy reunion. And also as a, as a magnificent tension builder was like one of my favorite little running details of the whole episode was the radio fakeouts. Like the, the, like the near misses. This episode was a masterclass in dramatic irony because the whole thing, all the tension ran on Bellamy and the space crew think that they're talking about uh, Octavia. And they're really mm-hmm. talking about Clark. Mm-hmm. And so like, and the audience yeah. knows that they're wrong. So every, like you said, every single moment they're anywhere, anyone is near a radio. You're like, is this when they find yeah. out? Is this when they find out? Is this when yes. they find out? Yes, exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And from both sides too, like the, yes. Yes. the possibility of, of Raven and Bellamy and all of them overhearing, you know, like I, like I kept thinking like, is, is Clark going to speak and they're going to hear it? Is McCreary going to be on the radio and give a description of the girl they're chasing mm-hmm. and says that she has mm-hmm. blonde hair and then and then Bellamy is like, oh holy shit. You know, or 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 like is, you know, is is Kodiak or somebody on the ship gonna call down to Dioza and be like, hey, mm-hmm. we've got seven people on our ship. And then uh-huh. Clark is gonna be like, holy fuck, holy fuck. Like, like the number of different ways it could have happened, and that every single one of them was a fake out. Uh-huh. Like, like the moment 
And I, and I think it was because we had all sort of convinced ourselves like, okay, it's way too early to be projecting that anyone that they're like, it's too early for like a physical reunion. Like yeah. everyone's like, like we, we, we all have sort of like agreed as a people and a nation that the reunion that we were going to get in this episode was like somebody overhears somebody probably like Bellamy's going to hear her voice. That's like, that's yeah. like the ceiling. <laughs> that's like the max, yeah. you know? And so we were all waiting for that. And listening for that and, and, and sitting on the edge of our seat with that sort of build and build and build of tension. Like, who's going to be in the room when we find out that Clark's alive because they hear her voice over the radio and they kept skirting right up to that line. Like, the mm-hmm. more McCreary talked about, like, like she and like describing who they were, like, you know, you were like, okay, so he's going to say it. He's going to say, you know, she's five foot, whatever, with blonde hair, you know, and then they're going to be like, oh my God, it's Clark. You know, like the, like the almost, almost, almost. And then it didn't happen until it really happened. I was like, God, like just structurally, it was so like it just kept you like hanging on the edge of your fucking seat mm-hmm. waiting for the thing that we have known for six years in showtime, you know, right. um, to that this life changing piece of information to me made known to these people whose entire life, all of them has been shaped around this staggeringly profound loss mm-hmm. that it turns out again is another story that isn't real. Yep. Yep. And it's a story like the story that has been the story that like, that shaped Bellamy that like shaped mm-hmm. Every like life on the ring is sort of entirely predicated around this idea that Clark died for us. Clark's Clark died for their sins. Clark is their origin story. Yeah. And and she's fucking alive. And it's just like, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So I thought that that build towards that. Yeah. I never in a million years and I will, I will, we don't have to like go into this a lot because doing, we're, we're recording a special all Balark all the time screening <laughs> podcast tomorrow, which I guess we'll probably, it's going to go up before the regular one. So it's like happening tomorrow for me, but like by the time that you, you, the audience hear it, it will have already happened for you. So this is one of those fun time things. <laughs> so we don't have to go into a lot, but I never in my wildest fucking dreams, could have imagined that the way <laughs> that Bellamy would find out that Clark was alive is Maddie like leaping out of the darkness with a spear and a gun, killing yeah. three guys, and then walking like looking at being like, and then recognizing Bellamy, like instantly recognizing Bellamy, and then saying Clark knew you would come, and then grabbing mm-hmm. him by the hand and dragging him away to say like. I never would have imagined because I literally, if I had begun to imagine it, I would have been like, oh, whatever, Aaron. Like, that, like come on. Like, stop pretending that fanfic is going to be actually the show. Right. Don't be ridiculous. That no, it will like, never be that extra. But no, exactly. Like, like <laughs> the, and there it was. Like, this was like last week with like, no one's going to really handcuff Kane and Abby together. We've got their problems. Right. Ha ha, just kidding. Right. And right. then this week it's like, okay, but like, but we're not really going to get the like, Maddie has already decided Bellamy is her dad. That's yes. a great fanfic, but like, it's not yes. going to. And then there it was. And, uh-huh. and what I loved, like the symmetry of Maddie saves Bellamy and and all of Clark's friends in a situation where they have no other way out uh-huh. so that then Bellamy and Maddie can come save Clark in a situation where she has literally no other way out like there's uh-huh. no like there's no rescue coming and then except Maddie you know uh-huh. and uh-huh. Maddie who is doing the you know the thing that Clark told her not to do like she's not staying hidden and keeping herself safe she's you know being a Clark's tiny adorable battle child but like I love <laughs> What an efficient shorthand, because like we haven't heard Clark 
talked to Maddie about Bellamy. We've really only heard them, we only discussed Octavia. Yes. But like we know because she has a book full of drawings, like we know that there's obviously like everyone is in there. We know that there's a drawing of Bellamy. But the, the sort of like, I mean, on the, on the, on the sort of like on the shippy level where you <laughs> sort of wonder like, what are the things that Maddie knows? What are the things that Maddie has extrapolated? What are the things that Clark has revealed in the way that she talks about Bellamy? That Clark maybe doesn't even realize that she's revealed in the way she's Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, like, I think it's, it's like, obvious, like, like, what does Maddie know about who this person is? But it's obviously right. like, we're already family. I'll, we'll figure out logistics on the way. Just like, give me your hand. Let's go. Come on, Dad. This kid like, who. Like, she, she just grabs and like, you, I, I, I'm so emotional. Well, and you think about. Oh my god. Well, and you think about like the first time she met Clark, like the like Clark, the first new person that she'd met since her people died, right? Like the first uh-huh. new person that shows up. And you think about that Maddie who was setting fucking bear traps because she was just like <laughs> like all she like all she knew was death and trauma and fear and she didn't trust people. And like yes, part of it is like, you know, she's older now, but also like like the Maddie that she became with this like love and and closeness and care that she received from Clark and this deep sense that like all the people that Clark loves, like Maddie already loves them mm-hmm. like and loves them as though they're real, like loves mm-hmm. them in a, in an immediate and concrete way. And so like the fact that, you know, her, her first meeting with Clark is like trying to kill Clark. <laughs> and then her first meeting with, with all the people that Clark loves and misses and, and who left her behind, like that Maddie mm-hmm. is like, talk about like, like Maddie feels a sense of guilt. Like Maddie feels sort of this yeah. indirect kind Kind of like almost like a survivor's remorse kind of thing about like I'm sorry they left you behind. Like we're sort of implied like does Maddie sometimes worry that Clark would rather be with them than with her? Would that foster a sense of resentment? And it didn't like yeah, at all. Yeah, yeah you know, no, there's there's no. no there's no sense of like fuck you for abandoning her. There's no sense of like oh you're those people that she talked about all the time. This is kind of awkward. You know, it's sort no, of like okay, like, oh my god, great, you're here now. Yes. All right, we don't have time for introductions. I'm your child. Let's Let's run, you know, yes, and I yes. and like, and oh think, my god, think, and they're silent. The hand signals. I'm yes. I just oh like, my god, w- watching this like click immediately into yes. like as though as though Maddie had known all these people their whole life, like already like hatching battle schemes together. Like it was just the the it said so much without overplaying it about the way that Clark has talked about all of these people. Hmm. Yes, exactly. I mean, I think that's the, that's the like thing, you know, like obviously she, like Clark has told so many stories about everyone, but like both in sort of an in-world way where like the person that Maddie immediately fixates on is Bellamy. Like the person who's right. most important who is there is Bellamy. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like where she's just kind of like, it's you. Clark said you would come, you know? And I think in that moment, yeah. she definitely, yeah. like, she means like Clark knew that Bellamy would come. Like, like yes, Bellamy exactly. is the one that yeah. Clark always knew would come back. Um Yeah. And then she's just kind of like, come on, Bellamy and everybody else, I guess. Um, (laughs) You know, like, it's just like, but like in, in terms of like in story, but like also in terms of like, if you think about like, okay, like there's the stuff you can kind of imagine happening at some point, we can sort of head canon in the world, but like, what's important is the way that the, like the way that the story is told, you know, what we're told is important is, is sort of central. And like that entire scene was just sort of like, Bellamy is the most special because mm-hmm. he's the one that she that she grabs onto, you know, he's the one who, you know, it's just it's sort of like it underscores how central Bellamy and Clark's relationship has 
remained over these years on mm-hmm. Clark's side as well as Bellamy's. You know, so like up on the up on the ship, yeah. we get that sort of like Clark is still so alive for Bellamy. You know, like mm-hmm. it or or and the loss of her is so raw. You know, I think that's the thing is like yeah. she is so much of a part of him in terms of how, who he's become. But you can see. You know, like bringing up Clark and the fact that she died is like verboten because you can see how like how hard that hits Bellamy. Like it's been six years yeah. and it still hits him in the gut, you know? And like yeah. when, when he's talking to Raven about the fact that somebody needs to stay behind, um, you know, you can see like he can, he can barely even get the sentence out when he says, I left Clark behind and I won't do it mm-hmm. again. Like he is so overcome. Like that that loss of her is still so present for him. Like, you know, you can tell like emotionally that's something like, it doesn't feel like it was six years ago, you know, like, um, and, and so, but like, you know, and, and it's so interesting because like, because on the ground, like Bellamy is still so alive to Clark, you know, clearly like through Maddie, Mm -hmm. they can see that like, like, you know, Maddie, and it's also amazing how Maddie takes it in stride. You know, she's like, Bellamy, yes. oh, hey, there you are. You know, like, yeah. here's this thing that I've taken for a given was definitely going to happen someday. It happens now. How yeah. handy. Okay, anyway, let's go. Yeah, like, like she like she saw the rocket or the, you know, or heard it or whatever, and she just knew, like, Clark was right. Clark said that he would come, and here he is, right on schedule. That's extremely convenient. Gotta go find my friends. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, I love it. Check. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um. And, and yeah. yeah, and I think, like, also, like you pointed out, you know, the sort of, like, the immediate level of trust where, you know, like Mm -hmm. she feels like she knows him and, and is sort of already like trusts him and, and has faith in him and, you know, sort of like, and just like grabbing his hand. And then also like in the Rover, you know, that moment when Mm -hmm. there's the great sort of parallel Maddie, no moment, Um, you know, when she like, you know, like Maddie wants to get out and like save Clark, you know, understandably. And Mm -hmm. Bellamy stops her and and says, I won't let anything happen to her. Mm -hmm. And like, and, and Maddie, you know, like she immediately, she believes him and she trusts him, which is like huge yeah. considering like, that's a huge thing to trust him with having met him like five minutes ago. Clark <laughs> is the entirety of her life. Like Clark yeah. is all that she has. And, you know, and we've already seen that, like, she's a, you know, she's a, she's a fearless little kid. Like she, she's willing to fight for Clark the way Clark is willing to fight for her. Like she's not, she's run into danger to save Clark before, and and so I, yeah, I think I think the fact that the fact that they build that like they hatch a plan and and that he like you know he treats her like he doesn't treat her like a child mm-hmm. like it's like he's learned something from the mistakes that he made with Octavia mm-hmm. I think in a way yeah like, like he's, he like he, her. you know he's like he wants to they're like her. they're like a pair like yeah. they're yeah he, like, he wants to protect her like he wants to keep her safe but but in a way where it's like they hatched this plan together like mm-hmm. maddie had agency in the creation yeah. of and he's just like this no, plan to rescue her person plan, you know and my job is to get out of the rover and go negotiate right. and your job yeah is... and your job is to take the rover back you know exactly. and yeah and i yeah so like that and then the, like the silent little hand signal like i loved i would like when he held up his hand and then it was like that's your cue and i was like oh my god they established hand signals like <laughs> But like I but I loved like I loved seeing again like this is a this is a Bellamy who's fundamentally different in the way that he siblings in the way that he mm-hmm. parents mm-hmm. you know like like because we like we know like we do this all the time like you know like the second he sees a small female child who in any way even vaguely resembles Octavia you know like it just like he just goes into like 
you are my child now. Like he just does it, you know? Um, And, uh, and, and Maddie being very much of her own volition. And I think like out of desire, very much a junior version of Octavia in, in some key ways, you know, like it, it's interesting seeing like the changes in him. He doesn't raise his voice. He doesn't push her. Like he doesn't, Mm -hmm. he doesn't do the things that he felt obligated to do, you know, with his first troublemaking little sister mm-hmm. it isn't just because his relationship with this with this kid is different but it's like he's learned things about how like that didn't work those were things that were harmful and and caused pain and you know and made it him like him and octavia often didn't feel like or work like a team or a unit you mm-hmm. know it was sort yeah, of like no, him didn't. over they her didn't. and yeah and so, so i liked so i liked how sort of effortlessly and seamlessly we're already seeing like He's a totally different kind of big brother parental figure to this kid than he ever was to Octavia. And, and the way that they kind of instantly snap into, like, I think this is, this is another, like, sort of little kind of subtle undercurrent of us extrapolating from Maddie's behavior how Clark must have talked about Bellamy. Is it isn't just that she's like, I trust you, like, because I know that you're important. I trust you because I know that Clark cared about you. She also has, like, unquestioningly accepts, like, Bellamy is the leader. Mm-hmm. Like, Bellamy is the person who, like, when he makes a plan and he carries out that plan and he's in charge, like it works and we trust him you know mm-hmm. and and so the fact that maddie will let herself be led without kind of pushing back made me feel a lot of things but um <laughs> like it's already setting up a dynamic that i think has the potential to be so interesting and i you know and i really it did sort of feel like he's the only one of those people close as clark was with raven and as like competent and amazing as raven is and as i'm sure legendary and incredible the stories were that clark told maddie about raven like bellamy's the only person where maddie would have said yes and stayed in the car i think yes i think so i think so and for the record bellamy is the dramaticest hoe ever to exist in the history of time. <laughs> oh my god the light the like walking <laughs> like like i like like the 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 like slow-mo with like a choir of angels singing i was like this is first of all yeah like bellamy well bellamy and and i would argue jason mothenberg and the directors i was just like okay so we're a passel of dramatic hoes and then and then when you juxtapose that with the fact that it's like you know he gets this like (laughs) i'm cackling this thing like but he gets this here it's like it's dark and then the light. And there's like a shadow in the light. Who is it? It's too tall to be Maddie. Who's coming towards it? Could it be Bellamy? And and he's got a mug. Like, <laughs> just like the, like the, the juxtaposition of like the gravitas leading up to Bellamy's dramatic reveal of his secret weapon to save Clark. And it's a world's greatest dad mug. I'm just like, what show are we watching? This is inspired. Like, like when you like when you really step back and you contrast like the setup and the punchline, it's masterfully weird. Like, it really, really is. Oh like, my oh my god. god. Yeah. Woo. <laughs> Uh, okay. Yeah, but no, but, I, but like, I loved. Uh, um, I mean, I I was I was I was like, I'm just so happy for Erin right now. It's like I can feel <laughs> I can feel her joy, <laughs> but it yeah. also was like it, it is a it it worked exactly perfectly. Like like what I loved about it was like like yes, there's a million shippy wonderful 
squealy flaily things that we could say about just sort of like like how it made our hearts feel but like as which story, I will do tomorrow and you guys will have yes. already yes <laughs> <laughs> but like as story as like a twist in the story and a way to completely upend the balance of the relationship between Clark and Dioza, which was like, Clark had lost. Mm-hmm. Like, Clark Clark had lost this battle. She was going to get, like, tortured to death. Like, she truly, like, and it's so, it's so hard to watch because it's like, she didn't lie. She mm-hmm. didn't know. Mm-hmm. Like, for six years, like, let her explain. Like, sit back down. Let her tell you the story. She was at the AI part. Let her fucking finish. Mm-hmm. You know, like, they left without her. They went up to space. She's the only person here. Everyone else is locked under a building. Like, she's telling you the truth. And it's so frustrating because you know that like Clark has no idea what's happening it feels impossible because she knows that nobody like she knows the bunker isn't open and she didn't see the rocket land and so she's like no like there's there's no there's no logical explanation in her mind for what's happening that she's being punished for and so like it's just the the brutal horrible unfairness of the fact that like this little bit of like kind of parlay that she had like established with Dioza has now been like completely shattered and she doesn't even know why yet you know and like and you're watching her like get you know kicked down the stairs and tortured with this shot collar and she's got nothing like she's no like there's no hope there's like no way out of this for her she's been outsmarted like every single turn Mm-hmm. Just the way it works as this like cheerworthy fist pumping like moment of salvation. You could not you could not have imagined a more like perfect cinematic timing. And that it's Maddie and Bellamy, you know, like that Maddie, mm-hmm. you know, Maddie strategically disobeyed and you know and came in the clutch and like saved Clark's life. And the like unbelievably indescribably perfect timing of the fact that like space crew landed not a moment too soon and somehow. Maddie like like all the like but it doesn't feel like stupidly coincidency like it doesn't feel like oh well that's convenient it just feels like a perfectly paced like oh shit oh shit the walls are closing yeah, in yeah and at the last absolute last possible moment like here comes rescue and and clark is blindsided by it like it's yeah. just like structurally like it works so and beautifully just, and her face when she real i mean like oh just my god yeah this sort of like the, yeah. the look of dawning realization of sort of like panic and then confusion and then just like Mm-hmm. Like she literally cries with relief and joy. Like she's yes. just so yes. like you can see like six years and not even just that mm-hmm. moment, that day of, you know, being trapped and, and a prisoner, but like six years of the weight of having yeah. been on her own. You know, she has Maddie, but she's, mm-hmm. you know, but she's like, she's a mom, you know, like she has. Right. Mm-hmm. Maddie's in a partner, you know, like Maddie. Right. Isn't something she can really fully share the burden of her life you know the burdens of life yeah and so like the sort of like sheer just sort of like crying with relief that he's alive and he's there and that and that she's not alone anymore that he's come yeah you know there's a kind of sense of like he is like thank god you know like here he is i don't have to do this alone you know like she's gonna she's gonna make it through this moment like he's rescued Maddie, you know. Like I feel like the realization that, like, yeah, like she doesn't ma- watching the rover pull away and knowing that, like, that Maddie is like okay. I mean, like imagining sort of like Clark, what Clark must be feeling in that moment that like Matt, you know, Bellamy and Maddie found each other, and Bellamy is protecting Maddie, and Maddie is okay because Bellamy is like yeah. just like the the sort of Bellamy Bellamy just traded his life for Maddie's to make sure that she was okay, and right. he took her place exactly. Basically. Like yeah. basically, yeah, you know, so yeah. so. You know, and, and, and like, it's so astounding for just, like, 
again, for like, they have not spoken to each other in six years, you know, then that's six times mm-hmm. as long as they knew each other before. Right, really. right. Um, yeah. And, you know, and yet the kind of like bone deep relief that she feels like, oh, thank God you're back, you know, and, and well, mm-hmm. how much, and just how much she has meant to him, you know, and seeing her alive means to him mm-hmm. in that moment. Just that like, you know, and especially in contrast with like, they just like two hours ago, you know, were up on the Elysius ship, you know, debating what to do about these 283 frozen people. Mm-hmm. And Bellamy was like, yeah. okay, but it's 283 live. You know, like we have to think about this. We can't just kill them. And then it gets to the ground and Dio's is like 283 lives for one. She must be very important. And he mm-hmm. says she is like to, for him to go in that space of time from, I don't know, guys, yeah. can we really kill 283 people just because they might wake up and kill us to, uh, hell yeah, I would absolutely in a heartbeat yeah. kill 283 people. That threat is real. Clark yeah. Griffin. Hmm. Like she is like, yeah. yes, she is worth 283 lives and another, you know, yes. stain on my soul is just like, yeah. Like, Ugh. I mean, you well, know, Jason has said it over and over and over again, like a bunch of places. He said it's like Bellamy and Clark is one of the spines of the show. You know, it's like one of the sort mm-hmm, of like mm-hmm. the, the central relationships. <clears throat> and you see it in that moment, this sort of like transcendent moment, you know, where like, yeah, where when they're separated, like it's something is like, you know, like when they're separated, this like feels like something's loose. You know, like part of the machinery is flapping yeah. around and things aren't quite working right. And when they come together, it's just like angels singing as, you know, a figure emerges <laughs> from the darkness silhouetted in light to rescue you. Holding a mug. <laughs> Holding a mug that says best dad in the universe. <laughs> the thing that I think is really is so like moving about that moment, because like I, I agree with you. I think that, you know, one of the things that I have disliked about chunks of, of the storytelling of the show that I feel have not worked well in season three in particular and, and chunks of season four too. Like when when Clark and Bellamy are, like I love so much the way that the show has developed their relationships with other characters. Mm-hmm. Which is wonderful mm-hmm. and and an important thing to hold on to. But I feel like you know when you go too long with those two characters in totally separate storylines, like yeah, like things start to feel kind of like unsteady. And so I I am totally shocked, but I'm actually really pleased that this early in this season we've moved past the what does this absence mean to us? How has this absence shaped us? Mm-hmm. Kind of phase of this. Like, we've laid that groundwork. We get it. It's there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, we don't need any more of it. Like, it's been it's been explicated really clearly. And now we're back at the point where the two of them together, even, even at odds, as they a million percent sure will very shortly, like, will be in the same story with their sort of, like, you know, and, and but, like, these different versions of them, that this... Bellamy hasn't met this Clark. Like, mm-hmm. they don't know each other yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole, you know, kind of hornet's nest, I think, to be un- unpacked there in terms of, like, you know, who is this Who is this ruthless motherfucker, <laughs> you know, willing to, like, do any kind of crazy thing to protect her child, but also he's going to understand it yeah, because, yeah, yeah. you know, it's Bellamy. But what I what I loved about that she is moment something that um that Sam said in her in her review on Telltale which I just loved was you know part of the way to that moment I mean and Selena mentioned this too like Selena mentioned the episode sort of feels like like a love letter to the show to the audience to the, to the fans mm-hmm. like it's such a mm-hmm. celebration of who these people are and and Sam was like in that moment where Dioza says like she must be pretty important to you and he says she is it's like it's both Clark's importance as a person to Bellamy the person and it's also this reminder of like how it's like how important Clark is full stop like how important mm-hmm. she is to the story how important she is to us like mm-hmm. how how meaningful of a character she is how like she is the whole weight 
of the entire narrative of the story is Clark and her journey and her relationships and just just her her significance as as a character to us as a bisexual action heroine in the sci-fi canon but also as the person that she is to all these people and like Bellamy's kind of like speaking for like both very very deeply speaking for himself like her personal importance to him mm-hmm. um and also in a kind of sort of metatextual way feels like a moment from the writers to us the audience of Clark is the center mm-hmm. of this whole story you know and and everything that happens orbits around her and the journey that she's gone on so just like it, it just made me like emotional in so many different ways Clark Griffin is so important like she's important yeah. to these people who exist in the story with her and she's so important to us and to the shape of the narrative as a whole and it was just this beautiful moment to land on when it's like she's so vulnerable like she needed you know she needed to be saved like she needed Bellamy and Maddie to come like roaring up in the rover with their magical mug of vengeance you know and you know and save her but it's like her significance is just like so monumental and so I'm just so I I just love that I thought that was such a I you feel so much for all of those people and but also then it kind of leaves us with this question mark of like now the relationship with Eligius has been completely flipped around and like what does Dioza do next now that she knows yeah in Bellamy exercising his leverage over Dioza he has also kind of inadvertently given her more leverage over both of them by sort of revealing to her like just how important these two feel each other are oh yeah for sure I mean like definitely that was kind of like a strategically perhaps not a bad move but just like both in terms of like her saying, you know, she must be really important and him saying she is, but also just the fact that like when he finally let himself look at Clark, he started walking towards her. Like he couldn't help himself, you know, like yeah, he's just sort yeah. of like moving towards her and Dioza had to say that's close enough. Yep, you yep. know, like he's hmm. given, he's like giving himself away in all these different ways, mm-hmm. you know, like Dioza now knows, you know, Dioza's in the, Dioza's with, uh, with like Rowan and Jaha RIP as characters <laughs> who like, who are like, so y'all are in love with each other. Good to know. Good to know. <laughs> um, like she knows, you know, and like, and mm-hmm. as we discussed, or, you know, like, oh, so many eons ago at the beginning of this podcast, um, Dios is a character who, you know, who's sort of like evil superpower is that she is a master at reading people, identifying mm-hmm. their sort of emotional levers. Yes, yes. And and using that, you know, so like she so now she has a huge one because mm. she knows she knows that Bellamy will kill 283 people to save Clark. Right. She knows that that's how important they are to each other. And so, you know, I can only imagine that she'll she is going to file that information away mm-hmm. to be used against them, you know, in some way or another to get what they to get what she wants later on. So that is intriguing to say yes. the least. Yes, she's gonna oh man, she's gonna fuck shit up. She really is. But I'm so excited to see like you know, it like it really does feel like like Jason was saying about sort of like now the now the pieces are all on the board are all sort of in place. It's like now we can get to the really messy, meaty digging into like who are you? Yeah. yeah. Like in in the in this absence, like who did you turn into 
Like, yeah. who, like, we have to get to know each other again from scratch, and not just the two of them, but also Octavia. Like, all mm-hmm. of these, I, I think it it makes sense. It makes really, really lovely sense that that was the first reunion. Like, I think we were sort of mm-hmm. thinking of it as being, like, the kind of culmination reunion that other ones were yeah. sort of building towards. But I like that we open, like, that the first two people who meet each other again are them, mm-hmm. but in a situation mm-hmm. where they can't exchange any information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, she knows he has a beard now, and that's it. You know, um, she knows he has a beard and a bug. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Those are my two facts. <laughs> yeah. The Bellamy Blake action figure comes with right. a bug. The, the <laughs> starter kit. Yeah, the starter kit to become season five Bellamy is a mug and a beard and a and a child. <laughs> so yes, they have to like kind of start over to get to know each other again from scratch, and there there hasn't like at this moment where we leave things at the end of this episode, they're still like living in the myths of each other, like mm-hmm. the the stories of each other that they've been telling themselves for comfort still exist because like even though like his has kind of been shattered by the realization that Clark isn't dead, she's still the same Clark to him and he's still mm-hmm. the same Bellamy to her. Mm-hmm. And so all of the like seismic shifts in their relationships, in their you know, identities in their histories, all that stuff that's happened and where their loyalties lie now. Mm-hmm. That's all kind of on pause in order to sort of like explode messily in our faces next time. And so we leave in this sort of moment of like, oh, it's so lovely. They're back together again. And like, he came and saved her and this, you know, like incredible, like moment of connection and rescue and love and trust and the partnership picks back up where it left off and then like almost immediately i imagine (laughs) that will all go to shit (laughs) yep uh Uh, in the best way yes so i feel a little bad that we didn't talk a lot about raven's decision to stay behind but i am literally going to like i i cannot stay awake any longer we so. we can talk we'll, we'll we'll get more of them I think next week probably like I think I think we might get more of them or if we don't we'll 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 just sort of stick a pin we'll in it for when we back yeah I, I mean I'm sure we'll get more Raven and Murphy next week yeah yeah, and yeah. even if we don't we can st- circle back to it because I do want to talk about yeah that moment, and and but. the yeah the, we 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 sort of touched on Raven and we didn't really get any of the Murphy Raven stuff but because there was just. So many other things to sidebar about. But yeah, let's just remember to like come back to that later because I didn't think that it's yes. important. Yes. Okay. So we will be back next week to talk about episode 504, which is called Pandora's Box. Pandora's Box. Pandora's Box. Yes. Everything got out but hope. Yes, yeah, so that's so that's the thing. So if you have not read the story of Pandora's Box in a really long time, red flag for yourself, if the bunker door gets opened in the next episode, which I assume is what that name means, whoever and whatever is the last thing out of the bunker, I feel is narratively significant in some kind of a way. So that's what I am going to be watching out for, because hope was the last thing out. Ugh. All right, go to bed. Right. I love you. Right. Good night. Bye, everybody. Bye.